What's going on, everybody? My name's Dallas. You're listening to Vic Food Stories, and this is the place where we talk about food in and around Victoria, BC. And in this instance, we're going to be talking cocktails, podcasts, businesses, books, all sorts of stuff. I'm very lucky to have, or I'm very lucky with the fact that Sean Sewell is sitting here with me right now for this conversation. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. The end of my day, we've cracked a bottle of wine. Got a bottle of Rathjen rosé sitting on the on the table. Dude, I got to say, this rosé is so smooth. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I, I'm not good with wine. Like, I don't know it very well. But this thing is like, you could drink that whole bottle easily, oh, I feel like. I'm going to drink that whole bottle during this interview. <laughs> Dude, it, it's just so light. It's just like refreshing. <laughs> yep. It's fantastic. Wild Ferment Rathjen Cell is up in the Como Valley. I just ordered a case here for Clive's. That's going to be our house rosé for the next little bit. And away we go. That stuff's money. So... What would you pair that with, ideally, do you think? Oh, like something like like a good salad with like salmon on top, some feta, feta cheese, beets. Yeah, feta cheese, beets, nice salad, big slab of salmon on top. Be perfect. Yeah, it's crisp, crispy side down. So the ver- first time I met you was at Cafe Mexico. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember I that. Mike and I just walked in and we, we had, had your no- doubts. No, we had no <laughs> idea who you were. Like I didn't know you were this powerhouse doing like a million things. And and we walked in because you were redoing um, redoing that place after mm-hmm. the fire. Yep. And yeah, we just walked in and we're like, "Who is this guy? <laughs> he's, he's he's crazy with the stuff he's doing there." And uh, ever since then, I've been wanting to talk to you again, just because online, like your Instagram, everything you do, it just. I we were talking before the podcast started, and the amount of stuff that you do is insane. Like I think that I sort of push it pretty hard, but I can't imagine doing what you do with the amount of videos you put up. You know, you mentioned you had four podcasts. Yeah. So maybe let's let's start with um let's start with the podcast. What's going on with your podcast? So uh, two years ago, January 2019, I started a um the Post Chef podcast, which I wanted to do. Like I, I can't remember what sort of sort of drew me to doing that um at, at all at the time. To be honest with you, like everybody says now, like oh, everybody's got a podcast. If you're if you're a middle aged white male, you've got a podcast. Blah blah blah. Um, I can't remember what drew me to it, but it was something that I think was cathartic. And we talked off off camera. We I, I started listening to Gary V and and gave me myself in a different sort of headspace. Um, and I was like, you know what? I I think that I'd like to do this. And so I kicked it off. Uh, started with the first episode. My second episode, I think, was with Solomon at Pagliacci's and he's my best friend in the world. And we just, uh, you were just, you just finished there, right? We just finished the the renovations there, which was huge, brand new bar and everything. And so really I sort of geared it towards like taking over a family brand that's 40 years old. Yeah. Um, One question about that. It's pronounced Pagliacci's, right? Pagliacci's, yeah. It's not Pagliacci's. Not Pagliacci's. But, but Peg's is correct. Peg's is it, correct. That's correct. <laughs> yes. But it's Pagliacci's. Pagliacci's, but Peg's is correct. Okay. Um, so I sort of kicked it off and then I started rolling. I, I think I went to San Antonio just after that for the San Antonio cocktail conference. Um, but yeah, it was, it was something that sort of grew organically for me, but it was something that I wanted to do for the industry. Not so much thinking that there was a, a gap in the market for it or anything. So post shift started as a, every, every uh, a podcast on Tuesday and Friday on Tuesdays, my little like weekly rant about work-life balance or, stuff like trying to demystify what a lot of kids think about the industry and about pillars in the industry like myself um, and how they sort of perceive 
brand ambassadors and how they perceive like this cool or like, like what you said, like you see on social media, like I do a ton of stuff, like that's also very stressful and can be depressing at times and being an entrepreneur is not the easiest thing in the world. So I try and demystify those sort of things and bring a little bit of realism to it all. And then Friday I do an interview with um, an industry stalwart. So whether it be Zoom calls now or in, in-person interviews. Um, and then fast forward to January this year, um, I started doing the BC Spirits podcast, which is my sort of passion project about BC craft distilleries and spirits. And so I do a tasting podcast on Wednesday and then I do an interview with a distiller or a producer on, on, on uh, Thursday. And is it the producer that made the thing that you tasted? Uh, no, because usually I do – it's BC Spirits. I do a, a spirit a day every day of the week. Okay. And then I've got a group of like six uh, really talented at-home mixologists or at-home bartenders who create cocktails on a daily basis as well. So I, I tag them and repost a lot of their cocktails on the on the thing because they do great cocktails with local spirits. So I'm like, I, I don't need to develop any of these. I've got great people who are doing it for us and it plugs them and so on and so forth. Um. And then on Wednesdays, I usually do a big tasting grouped up. So I've done like elderflowers. Uh, like last week was the elderflower liqueur off because we had like four elderflower liqueurs that I tasted side by side. I've done whiskey offs. I've done all the cassises in Kia Royale. So I did an episode with my wife, which she only makes a very um, light appearance every now and then in my podcast. But on the back deck, we set up the bar and I pulled out all the cassises I have in my collection, which is like seven cassises. Mm. And I got a couple of bottles of bubbles and I made her Kia Royales. And then she picked her favorite Kia Royale out of all of those. And so um, then Thursdays, just it's getting that connection. You, you're, you're the same. You're like, you want to get that connection about this industry is very passion driven. And so you want to figure out why that person does what they do. Because when people look from outside look in it looks super eccentric and weird and doesn't make any sense to the general consumer so you want to make that connection like why are you doing this like why you did you set up a distillery in duncan and decide to make vermouth with rathjan sellers with like i had jessica from ampersand last week um and of course there's a whole story behind why that was done exactly and like where they came from and uh i did i think the the biggest surprise for me was uh josh in um from Monashay Spirits up in Revelstoke, he was a deep under, underwater welder for like the military and the oil industry, and he did his back in. And so then he was like, "Well, I can't dive anymore." So retired, like semi-retired to Revelstoke, and decided to open up a distillery and welded everything himself. So all his stills are all welded just by him. That's sick. So yeah, so it, it is a ton of work producing four individual episodes. Every single week. And again, do all four of those have video or just some of them? Most of them have video. Yeah. That, that, the video is really the part for me that adds the time. Yeah. The audio, if I, could, if I was just doing audio, it's fine. Like I can do that and it's great. Once you throw the video in, and especially when you have multicam like this, mm-hmm. where you have to start toggling back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, that adds so a bit you of time. Go, you're even more advanced than me. Like I keep it super simple, like one shot straight you're doing to the money. A favor. <laughs> yeah, one shot straight to the money. I keep it nice and simple. Um, but I also see when it comes to the podcast, it's about how do people um, digest your message. Like some people like to listen, some people like to read, some people like to watch videos. So I try and take away as many barriers and hurdles as I can. Um, I'm trying to get to the stage where I'm actually transcribing every single episode of my podcast into uh, written as well. 
Would that be a human doing that or is there services that would do There's that? a couple of services, but to really get it right, you've sort of got to download it and then put it through like a fi- like Fiverr or something like that. Um, I use Fiverr a, a ton for that sort of services where you get like copywriting and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like it, it all depends on how people digest you. To, to think that someone's only going to digest your your information on YouTube or on your podcast, it seems very narrow-minded when you just put it out everywhere. One thing I've, I've noticed actually is people originally said they would only listen to podcasts. And since they found out that I have a video version, people have been transitioning over to the video version. Exactly. Because they want to see the people. Mm-hmm. But it's like they didn't realize that they actually like to consume it that way. Yep. <laughs> so just go take away the hurdles. You do. And, and I think that, um, I mean, these conversations are happening. It's just a matter of, do you want to spend the extra time to deal with having that extra bit of mm-hmm. uh, content as far as like adding a video? Yeah. And I, I think any piece of content is like, a, I was just saying to my friend, like a shotgun blast against a barn side. Some things get through for certain people. Some things don't get through for certain people. Some people don't have 10 minutes to sit and watch a video. Other people do. So it, it just all depends on how you want to absorb Or two it. hours. Or two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and some people have said to me that I should make these shorter, but I kind of feel like if there's content and it's, it's flowing, just let mm-hmm. it go. And if somebody, I kind of like think you can pause it and come back later and there'll be more there for you. But if you don't want to hear it all, that's okay. So I think you need an assistant so you can just chop it up. That'd be sick. I would love yeah. to have an assistant. <laughs> but I mean, I've, there's no money transpiring with this ever. So I can't afford to pay anybody. But it, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like for me, you know, starting on Instagram, taking mm-hmm. photos, it now has transcended that. And now it's, for me, it's about connecting with people. Like I do want to tell the stories because it, it like showing the food that's being made is amazing. Because that that can tells that tells stories in itself, but when you talk to the actual people, like that's for me now where the real magic is, and and it's just the, the transfer of energy when we're getting together and chatting, and I just I find a lot of value in that for like me as a human being. Well, I think COVID, uh, if anything, has peeled away a lot of the the glamour glamorousness of the industry in a way that, like, as a restaurant operator or a, a a head chef or something like you could have a horrible day and then service starts and it's and you're smiling and you're touching tables kissing babies and stuff and i think having humanizing how much work it takes to be a restaurateur or to make it a certain dish or to to work as hard as you do to sort of aspire to a certain level um having someone like yourself to sort of peel those layers away and sort of show like the not detriment, but like the the amount of work it takes and the sacrifice it takes well, to get to, to be, a certain t- stage. You almost have to be crazy to want to do it. Oh, 100%. On some level. We're, everybody in this industry is mental. If you're in a restaurant, you're, you're clinically insane. I'm really, really good friends with Rap and Roll. I'm basically part of mm-hmm. their family now, like literally. And like I'll be there three or four hours after they close. They're still working. Yep. Then the next morning, they're going to be there two hours before they open. And they they're just always there. Mm-hmm. They don't get time off. Um, especially when they did the Beirut fundraiser a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So that means what that meant was they're now committed to now two weeks without a day off and even on the day off they come in. Yeah. So I can totally appreciate after getting to know a lot of people, just the, how serious it is. Yeah. And it is that fine balance between necessity and happiness. And it, and I think with hospitality people is always toggling bit by bit. Like some days you're just like, oh, this has got to end. Like I, I need a day off. But then the next day something happens. You're like, I'm so happy to be in this industry. I love this industry. I had a great shift. 
uh, great customers in tonight. Everybody had a great time. We're in like in our deep down DNA, we're people pleasers. And that's that's what it is. That's why like we can all laugh at Yelp reviews and and TripAdvisor and stuff like that. But like when we really, if you're an operator and owner, like you really get one of those, it guts you like a fish. You're just like, oh, you left my place not happy, and that like we want you to feel happy and warm when you walk into our place and when you walk out of our place, happier and warmer when you walk out of our place. So I think ingrained where these ingrained DNA people pleasers. And so it's always this toggle between happiness and just necessity. And, and it is always one of those, you have a good week, you have a bad week, you have a good shift, you have a bad shift. And it's just like, almost like a drug where you're just like, oh, that- You're that, chasing the- Yeah, always chasing that next high. Because I've seen so many times, or not, not so many times, but quite a number of times where I've been talking to someone that I know, and they did get like a one out of five review. Uh-huh. And it totally, it doesn't matter if they normally get five out of five, that one out of five totally crushes them. For days. Yes. For days. And it drives me nuts that people, if there is an issue, like go and speak with them in person. Mm-hmm. If they don't handle it properly, then do what you need to do. But like give them a chance because quite often places I think do want to make, have you be happy when you leave mm-hmm. and they're going to do, they're going to do right by the person. My wife is the most understanding woman in the world when it comes to that, because like I can be on a massive high for weeks and weeks and weeks and then something happens and I'm... In, on the floor. Like instantly. Instantly. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, just took the wind out of your sails. You're literally like a massive ship. And then all of a sudden something happens and you're this little dinghy in, in the rough waters. <laughs> and you're just like, but why is this happening to me? Yeah. What do you think when someone comes into an establishment, what's like the number one most important thing for creating the type of experience you would want someone to have? Oh, see, this one's a hard one because I've always contemplated this one. I think it's a symbiotic relationship. And I, 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 I feel... To a degree, the symbiotic relationship between restaurant and 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 customer has sort of devolved a little bit in the in the last ten years because of online and social media and so on and so forth. It, it should be a symbiotic relationship where you, the person's coming in to experience what you have, and you're there to give you give people that experience. And I think it's devolved a little bit, whether it be culture or franchises or anything like that, or being something for everybody. I think at the end of the day, it's it's this very tenuous balance of keeping your ma- mission statement and your mantra of like what you want to be and also keeping everybody happy at the same time with also the realization that you're not going to be able to keep everybody happy all the, t- all the time. Like, Of course. There's always going to be some random person that you just will never make happy. Exactly. But I think there's that symbiotic relationship of give and take of – I'm here to take whatever you're willing to give and you're here to give me what you are offering within your little constraints or boxes of what you do. You know, you don't go into a Michelin star restaurant and ask for a hamburger, you know, same reason you wouldn't go to a pub and ask for caviar. You know, I had that back in the day here at Clive's um, way more aggressively back in the day when we didn't have really have cocktail culture in Victoria, we wouldn't do cosmopolitans. And people were like, you don't have Jaeger? Like, what sort of bar doesn't have Jaeger? I'm like, well, go across the street and ask if they have China. I've got China on the well. I'll pour you some China. No problems in the world. But so it's this sort of interesting myth, like where you wouldn't walk into a, a high-end cocktail bar and order a Jaeger bomb, but you wouldn't go to a dive bar and order a perfect Manhattan. You know, it seems to be demonized when you walk in and ask for a Jaeger bomb in a fancy restaurant or a fancy cocktail bar. 
but doesn't get demon. You'd never, never, no, a customer would never ask for a perfect Manhattan at a dive bar. Do you think it's important then to sort of create what the expectation the customer should have when they first walk in then? Like the, the, to manage the expectations? I, th- I think so. I think there's a lot of things that people, I, I call it subco- subconscious chaos. Um, I feel that the world outside of any restaurant or bar is chaotic whether it be gain to work through traffic or your shitty boss at work. Can I swear on the podcast? Go, go for it, dude. <laughs> dude, you can say whatever you want. You're good. Um, your shitty boss at work or the crappy lunch you had or you got sh- you got pooped on by a seagull on the way to the restaurant. Which, by the way, I got shit on twice in the same day <laughs> in two different locations by birds like two or three weeks ago. Down on Government Street and Wolf Street is pretty aggressive. It, one was right by the Inner Harbor. Yeah. I was having Hanks, like eating my burger. As you do. It hit my it hit me in the head. And then I went to Mai Tai for, for uh, dinner. And then standing outside there, I got crapped on again. And it hasn't happened any other day in the past like 20, 30 years. But it happened so twice on that it's day. It's a lucky day. I know. I wanted to buy a lottery ticket. You should have. And I didn't get, I didn't get to one. So I think with the experience, like... I see it as when people are out there in their in their ecosystem, it's chaotic and noisy and loud and disorganized. But when you step through over that threshold, it should be paced and comfortable and neat and organized and almost regimented to a degree. I, I look at it as like a duck on water. You know, like a duck on water looks peaceful and calm, just gleaning across the top of the water. But underneath that water, those legs are just like churning hard so they don't sink. And so that's what I see as a restaurant. So when when I was growing up, when I first started in the restaurant industry, I worked in a fine dining, like super fine dining, silver service style place. And everything was like thumbnails and angles and all that sort of stuff. And I've kept that sort of mentality that the maitre d' sort of fell to me because when you sit at a table, regardless of how chaotic your brain is, when you sit at that table and you see that organization and the straight lines and the edges and everything, it just should subconsciously calm you mm. and you should feel comfortable in a space straight away. It doesn't matter if you're a fine dining restaurant where you're wearing a suit and a tie. It's that, it's that nature of systems and places and everything that sort of ties in, whether it be the music, the uniforms. I've been really big on uniforms in the last couple of years when it comes to like, what does the uniform say about the venue? How the music sounds? What's the lighting like? Um, what's everybody else drinking? What are the glassware like? Those little things in people's heads, they will never register them, but subconsciously it sets a tone and bit by bit, you want to take them down from that chaos to this sort of like, like a, almost like a tuning fork. Bing, and you just want to bring them down to this place where they're just comfortable and calm when they sit down at the table and they're like, oh, my water's here. My plate, well, it's a little bit difficult with COVID right now. We've got our little, our drop zone here on the table, but like my cup's here. My, my cutlery is here. My glass gets put down on this side. I get picked up on the left side. So it's these little things that I try and take out this sort of chaotic noise that happens in people's lives out there. And one thing you said there was about uniforms. Mm-hmm. And I've never really, I, I guess I have sort of paid attention to people in like uniforms in restaurants, but I haven't really paid attention, I don't think. So I was just thinking about that here with you mentioning that. And so what do you think with a uniform, what should that really say? I think it should set a tone. Um, we're slowly but surely progressing to that, probably in October, going back to the chef coats, very similar to what we had at FTW back in the day. 
where everybody like all the bar staff will be in chef coats like nice short sleeve they're comfortable you wear a t-shirt on it you can go commando on it if you really want to it's just the most airy breezy wonderfulness that it is um west one of my one of my crew one of my kids at ftw he's over at olo now said it perfectly when someone asked him about the chef coats he's like when i'm getting ready for work i don't have to worry about the way i look i don't have to worry about my tie my vest being dry cleaned anything like that i show up in a t-shirt i throw on my vest it's got my name on it it's got the emblem on it and all my team looks the same and our goal is the same our duties are the same our goal is to keep make you as happy as possible and it has nothing to do with whether or not I'm wearing the, the swankiest bow tie or my tie pins right or my vest is pressed. It's about coming in and just serving the customer. And I guess that that's, re- that's removing uh, friction for your employees because mm-hmm. now you're making it easier for them. Yep. They don't have to worry about any of that. You just show up and just do your best. Yep. And we, and we all have a common goal. Like it, it, I'm, I'm from a military family. So my dad was ex-military. And so I'm the eldest six as well. So we're all 18 months apart. So... <laughs> Like growing up as elders of family yep. in a military ex-military family, um, having this sort of rhythm and regimentation, and it does sort of go against the the easy breezy flow of the West Coast a little bit to a degree. But when everybody has that same goal in mind, when everybody has that same thought process, that same movement, everything, your personality really comes out because all the other stuff you usually think about, whether like a uniform or the way that you pour or something like that. All that gets taken away and your your true personality just comes out to the customer because everybody can do the exact same movement and the exact same cocktail, the exact same way, the exact same time and speed. And it's just about the customer service. And you mentioned FTW. Yes. And unfortunately, I never got in there when it was open. Yeah. And I was I was so devastated when I saw that it it, it closed down. Yes. Yeah. So was I. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how would you have descri- how would you describe FTW, what that was? When it was open for anyone that didn't go, FTW was a, an interesting little thing because the the space called for like this nineteen fifties LA vibe. And for people like, that don't know, it's in it's across the hall from Bartholomew's, mm-hmm. and, and Bartholomew's that, is gone now too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Bart's is shut down too. So oh, no. Yeah. So it was this little thirty eight seat sp- space that had been around for about twenty thirty years. No, nothing had really gone in there that had been successful, and. We turned into this 1950s LA. What it reminded me is when you go to the LA strip, down from the the movie lots and stuff, like you drive down these strips and you see these bars behind big leather doors and you'd open them up and it'd be this great space. And you can imagine Sinatra sitting in a booth having like three martinis and lunch during, in between like breaks in the movie the movie set or the, the recording studio. And that's kind of what we try to re- redo. But the cool thing we did is that we we definitely kept our cocktail ideas in the in that 50s sort of range, but then put a real big molecular spin on it. So our our last menu before we shut had like a um sideshow, like a circus sideshow section where we had cocktails inspired by the circus sideshow, which included like a popcorn washed rum old fashioned style cocktail, mm. one that had a, a like bobbing bobbing for apples. Yeah, and so we put that in a skull head, did a foam on top, and then sweet pickled crab apples, and put crab apples in like full size crab That's apples wild. in the in the drink. Um, that actually won. That one had a the, the foam was a hay infused foam, so I got hay and gave it a really good clean, and then soaked it in sugar syrup. Okay. And then turned that into a foam. So it smelt like hay on the nose. 
but it was bobbing for apples. That's crazy. And so we did this sort of like super modern molecular gastronomic molecular mixology style um, drinks menu, but geared it back towards the 50s. So we still had like a classic highball, which was uh, Suntory Toki and soda. And the cool thing with that is that in the 50s, 60s, Sammy Davis Jr. was a spokesman for Suntory. If you go to YouTube, type in Sammy Davis Jr. scatting Suntory, there's a whole ad for Suntory of Sammy Davis like scatting. He never says anything except for Suntory at the very end for like two and a half minutes with a Suntory bottle. And he plays it like a cello. He's like, and then he pulls, he pulls it over the cracked ice and he's like, Suntory puts it down he's smoking cigarettes he's drinking it's just and i was like okay so we're going to do a, a classic highball and my crew's like oh well that's pretty easy i'm like well no what i'm going to do is i'm going to bring in seven different styles of sparkling water and we're going to taste suntory toki with all these sparkling waters to see which one goes best and then you start really geeking out about sparkling water with whiskey and so we taste all these sparkling waters and we're like okay this one and it's just random french Sparkling water, really small bubbles from Bossa Imports that we had to pick up from Market on Yates every couple of days. And that's all it was, a double shot of Suntory Toki with this very specific sparkling water. It just tasted money, sold tons of them, but it's just a classic whiskey highball. So It's we- amazing that though with water, how water can change everything. Because we, we went to a sake uh, brewery in Japan when I was there with oh, Anton. Wow. We went to we went to one of them right by Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. So they had in the in the the main um, uh, place where you could buy everything, and in the main area there, they had this little well kind of with with water from Mount Fuji coming out. Seriously, and you could just take a glass and put it under and drink it, and it was like it was like buttery. I've never had water like that in my life. It's crazy, isn't it? It was the most insane thing. And then like when we, we, we got private tours at um, Yamazaki and Hakushu, of course you did, <laughs> which which were sick. Um, but going to those tours, like we learned that they put those breweries mm-hmm. in those locations because it's of the, the water. water. That's why. It's mental, isn't it? It's it's crazy. Like, and people think like, oh, the water doesn't really matter. I'm like, yeah, but if the alcohol content's 40, then that means 60% of that bottle is water. Like it, 40% alcohol, the rest is water. Like it means something. We did the same thing with F- going back to FW. We did the um, Frank Sinatra and it was just a triple pour of – Jack Daniels single barrel because that was Frank's. He, he was a Jack Daniels drinker, so we did a triple and we we poured like seven still waters to put on the side, hand 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 carved ice, triple pour of the Jack Daniels single barrel with a side of water, and we went through all these waters. And I picked up Evian, and I thought ah, it's gonna it's just gonna be the baseline. It's gonna be like if that's if we're gonna do all these waters, that's gonna be the one that's just like eh, it's good, but it's the baseline. And we all agreed that the Evian was the best. And then West was doing a little bit more research once we started opening. And we found this old Sinatra rider for one of his performances. And it lists like his vodka and he has to have these sort of M&Ms and sardines and so on and so forth. But the the key was, was these bottles of Jack Daniels and then bottles of room temperature Evian water. Hmm. And I'm like, well... Obviously, like Frank drank his Jack Daniels with a splash of Evian. And I was like, okay, obviously that means something. It's serendipitous. So that's on the menu now. That's sick. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever open another bar in town? I got asked that question today, actually. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I will never say never. 
Well, I mean, like, again, you, you do so much stuff. Like, where would you have the time to do that? But oh, I've taken back over this place. I know. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to get into that. I wanted to ask you, though, too, about uh, Sewell Hospitality Concepts. Okay. And just to sort of explain to everyone what that was. I think that's that's probably the main reason why I probably wouldn't open something else. Like, I love opening bars. Like, I love opening bars and restaurants. I love that that grind that that work that it takes to build a team and build a menu and stuff like that um i just i don't think it's the best use of my skills and my time in this day in, in this time i think that's more it is that it becomes it takes everything that i'm sort of doing right now and just puts it into one channel mm -hmm. very quickly it's like you're doing this and this and this but then when you open a place it's like okay you do everything for that one place and I think. So, do you feel like you're going to be able to reach a lot more people or have a bigger impact? I think that's what it is. I yeah. think opening a venue is great, but for from a like a pure legacy point of view, and I think over the last couple of years, like when I opened up Little Jumbo in 2013, um, and I left here, and then I, I did FTW in 2017. I think legacy has changed definitions for me. And legacy used to be like a venue-specific legacy, whereas now uh, SHC and all the things that I'm doing, it's my legacy is tweaked. Like my legacy is not so much having one team of three or four people that I train and take to a certain level. It's industry-wide, and it's not about just making one venue really, really good. It's about making as many venues as I can good. Um, whether it be interior design and construction or online marketing or social media and all that sort of stuff. So, so I you think basically advise like a business or a restaurant on everything they need to do. I can take now with everything that I'm doing, I can take from a napkin concept yeah. to post operations all within my companies. Wow. From I've got a branding and design guy who does menus and logos and everything so he's done all my branding he actually did little jumbo branding back in the day so funnily enough with the tattoo he sent me this through and because i was just so busy when with the opening of little jumbo um i forgot to message him back and say yeah it's really good and then i went and got the tattoo and so he saw my facebook post with the tattoo and he's like he texts me he's like so you're happy with the branding <laughs> i'm like yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah you committed for life yeah so i got the tattoo literally the day we signed the lease for for jumbo but i think legacy wise i think that's what's sort of as you get older i think like before it's, it's not ego driven but it's very you want to sort of accomplish something by a certain age in the industry like opening your own venue or so on and so forth and i think it's changed now where like like mike norberry you interviewed him and anton Fernine, like he was one of my kids and you know so i've got like this whole sort of brood of bartenders that I, I sort of train and mentor and talk to and stuff like that. So I think I see that as my legacy more so than a singular, almost inward feeling of like opening your own venue. Well, I would say this, this is amazing because it sounds like you have really good self-awareness. Yeah. I, it's taken me a long time. Like, Of I course. You, well, I, you, it takes time to get more data, <laughs> yeah. right? It's taken me long. Like opening three venues last year in like five months in Singapore was a, a huge experience. Um, yeah. So how did that happen? So that was through a few things. But one of my good friends who used to be here in Victoria moved to Singapore about six years ago. 
and he opened a place there and then they want to expand. And I think he reached out to me May 1st or just before May 1st last year. And I was like, oh, we're talking about doing this concept and here's the, the concept sheets and design work and stuff. I'm like, okay, cool. And I think I was on vacation with the family at that time. I came home for a week and I went to Portugal to speak at the Lisbon Bar Show. And um, I had a, a, a Zoom meeting or a phone meeting with them a video call conference when I was there and I wrote the contract up while I was Lisbon. I came back from Lisbon for one week and then I flew to Singapore for two and a half months. So I, (laughs) and you opened five or three restaurants and three restaurants in five months. That's crazy. Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the design and um, uh, the design and sort of layout work had been done, but none of the menus, none of the hiring and that sort of thing. And I think I posted a video on May 1st when I first landed. Oh, sorry, not May 1st, May 27th when I first landed in in Singapore. And it's just like dirt floors, a little bit of framing and that's it. And then we opened that on June 3rd. So literally a month between landing and thing, I had to do a full menu, full wine list, full food, food dev. Um, and then we opened up a little cocktail bar. So the, the first restaurant was like 70 seats in the front called um, Misfit, Misfits. Um, very Spanish style, Mediterranean, Greek island sort of feel to it. And then in the back, they want to do like a 15 speak- seat speakeasy called Roxy. Mm. And that was going to be Latin America. So new, like old world, like new world, old world, sort of oh, new world, old world. Um, and so we did all Latin America. So lots of rum, tequila, mezcal, soto, that sort of thing. Um, and then my second visit back in, I think, October, August, was to do the third venue, which was called Bayside over right on Fulton Place. So, you know, Singapore is the big three-tower yacht on the top sort of deal, literally straight across from that. Mm. And the the group that owned that area had basically leveled a garden bed to put this bar in. And it was horribly designed. Um, and sort of like we tried to get our finger in the pie earlier on design and so we had to really rip everything out and start again and so that that opened along with roxy my second visit and so yeah three venues in in five months and how many restaurants would you say you've worked in or had a hand in over the years since little jumbo in 2013 i worked as 13 venues wow in one way shape or form between from consulting on designing opening owning yeah so like 13 venues in seven years and how, with the consulting and that, how did that come to be that you sort of got into that role? Like, was it just a natural thing that just over time you just realized that this is something I'm good at and I have vision or how did that work? Um, that, was a hard, that was a hard slog, to be honest with you, because it's something that's never really existed in Victoria anyway. And so when I did Capo Mexico, like we talked about Capo Mexico, that was a cold call. I literally reached out on Facebook. I was like, saw the article, you're reopening. Would love to help out. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, let's let's sit down and chat and and see how much like I so I gave them a quote. Cause something you were I, something that stands out for me at, at Mexico was um you were doing something where one of the one of the um barrels, like you wouldn't fully empty it. Mm-hmm. And you would sort of mix different like slightly so aged. Yeah. And that was a really cool thing where you're getting Which different have- different ages of the the alcohol yeah so that 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 those sort of things the good thing is that brad and hilda are amazing operators 
Brad's been doing it for 30 something years. Like Cafe Mexico was 30 years old. Before that, he had two or three restaurants. So he used to own the, the restaurant that was in the Bent Mast before the Bent Mast. Um, absolutely amazing operator. And so pairing up with them, it was a lot of work because the scope of the work, once we really started digging in, like the floors had to get replaced because they were fire damaged. All the walls had to get sandblasted because they were fire damaged. But we had to be careful on the, the walls because they're 120-year-old brick. And so the guys who came in and sandblasted it, sandblasted it too heavy with too heavy grit. So then we had to get them all repointed. Um, and I remember just before I flew out to Tales of the Cocktail for a, a seminar, I literally climbed up a ladder and a ruler and chalk and designed that back bar like with like a ladder and chalk. So I left with this big this big slabbed wall of plywood with boxes drawn in chalk. I was like, this is the boxes that you need to put in. And then they just built boxes and screwed them in on that side. So that was like everything from the basic booths across in the bar and everything I designed from like by hand drafted out and so I think when it came to consulting here in Victoria I had to make the decision if I was going to do it that I had to attack it it couldn't be a like wait for it to happen it had to be like if some place burnt down or a place needed work like I'd, I'd hit up places that I'd go and have cocktails I'm like your cocktails are rubbish like don't mean to be rude, but like you've, you're a Caribbean bar that doesn't serve good mojitos. Um, let me help you out. And so there was a little bit of, well, it's a little bit of humility because you're sort of asking for work, mm -hmm. but also there's a little bit of arrogance in the fact that you think you can do better than they're doing. So this is sort of balancing act. So I helped out Guild for a long time while before they got taken over. I helped out with their the training and. Uh, beer program and so on and so forth, inventory and the financial back-end stuff. I'm helping Sizzling Tandoor with their expansion right now. I helped them with the first time round on Johnson Street, um, Japanese Village's little lounge. I did nothing with the cocktail program at all because they didn't want anything with the cocktail program, but I came in, I redesigned the bar, ripped out the sushi bar, my con my contractor ripped out the sushi bar, my interior designer paired everything up because we couldn't really upgrade the space because Japanese village is Japanese village. So we have to sort of like try and pair everything up with 30-year-old decor. That Japanese village is still going to be Japanese village and it's always awesome, but we had to pair it up, um, which is really difficult. We had to pull a guy out of retirement to pour the, the, the bar top because he did the original bar top in 1978 or something. So we pulled him out of retirement to lay down the new bar top. Is that purely because of the fact he was – in it before, it, did he do it, something unique? He did something super unique. It was a very specific resin, a very specific resin mix um, with flake that got dropped into a mold, and we couldn't find anyone in town to do it. So they pulled this guy out of retirement and pulled like this bar top to match everything. That's crazy. So, but it was just it was just bit by bit of like this sort of a balancing act between humility and arrogance to sort of build the business up. Um, which I still have to do now. I have to remind myself to keep doing the same thing all the time. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever struggle like with ego? Is that ever a thing that you battle with? Like your ego says, Oh, you should do this, but you know, it really, you shouldn't do that. I have, I have a concept called my banner and my Hulk. Okay. So my wife sees my banner, my very vulnerable, like second guessing constantly, not very confident person, which I am. I'm a 
I've got social hardcore social anxiety and introvertness, which people go, you no. But then my Hulk is the guy you see behind the bar. He's the guy's like, hey, 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 hey. And so I'm constantly struggling with Hulk and Banner. How how difficult do you find it to be able to recharge? I don't take days off. I take hours off. Okay. So, but I find the things that make me happy in the shortest period of time. So, spending time with my family. Now, mainly, my wife is ridiculous. Like I said, my wife is ridiculous understanding. My, my daughter is too. Um, they know that if I go out for a hike or breakfast, that that's my recharge time. I can recharge pretty quickly. Um, but then I find things that are just for me as well. So, I'm really, I love my cigars. So smoking a cigar on the back deck, just chilling out. I'll I'll be on my phone. I'll be doing social media. I'll be answering emails during this time. I'll have my laptop on my lap, but it's my time. Like it's my time to just relax with a whiskey and a, and a cigar. Um, And I'll just chill out like that. So for me, recharging is not really a necessary thing because I wake up every morning, sometimes rough, sometimes good, but it's that chase, it's that process, it's that like constant like, okay, what do I have to achieve today? Like I know what I have to do. Obviously, COVID is very hard for everybody right now because it's very repetitive because it's you can't go out, you can't go sit at the coffee shop and write, you do your edits of your book, you go sit in your office and do that. But I find that's what keeps me going. It's that all the time. So you like, just, you straight up love the process like Gary Vee says. Yes. Because <laughs> like, you enjoy the whole, all, every part of it. You're not. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not going to rah, rah, rah it and say like, I love it all the time. There's of course. Ta- there's times when I wake up and it's like. <sighs> when I do these podcasts, there's parts of this process that I hate. Yeah. When I'm actually putting it together, there's, there's a, some parts that I really don't like. And you're just like, oh, I just want this to be done or yeah. I just want a break or I just want something. And so I never try and rah, rah. I try and keep very like a couple of weeks ago. Um, on a Saturday, like I just did a, a massive, like 12 hour shift here. It was busy and I woke up and I'm a part of, a um, a charity organization out of Toronto called the bartenders benevolent fund. So usually on Saturday morning, we do a big meeting and go through all the grants and say, yes, you get money. No, you get money. Don't and so on and so forth. And so that's usually at 10 o'clock in the morning. And so I had to do that. And then I do some errands for this place. And I actually stopped and I tweeted out to everybody. I was like, you know what? Like I, can handle this most of the time today's hard hmm. like today's a hard one you know I've, I've had three nitros i'm bad my feet are killing me like being back behind the bar was absolutely great next morning not so much because my feet ache my my knees are bad um and so like i, I like to show people that there's there's some vulnerability to it like i'm not a steamroller that just keeps going and going and going like there is times when i was like most of the time i'm i am like i'm super positive want everybody to succeed. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And there's other times I'm like, oh, I just want to go back to bed. I want to spend time with my wife. I Are wanna... you naturally a positive person? Ooh. Because so- Man, the, that's a curveball. Well, Jeez. No, I, I'm just, it just popped into my head. The reason why I ask is because I'm not. And everyone that I, a lot of people that know me, they all think like I'm always super positive, but I make a conscious choice to be that way. I, I would say I'm a little bit of, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, Growing up, um, I like I said, I grew up in a big family. I went to fourteen different schools between preschool and, and grade twelve, and two of those schools I went to for three years and four years. Mm. So you can imagine, I went. I think I went to grade five, like four grade five schools. So having friends, moving, 
Um, I had a very upheaval life, like upbringing with my family. Um, we moved around a lot. My, again, my dad was ex-military. And so in the back of your head, you sort of got to shut that voice up. And I think that's a little bit goes back to that banner and Hulk of like, you've got to shut that voice up sometimes and let Hulk drive mm-hmm. um, of like, oh, shit's going good right now. Something bad's going to happen soon. Like, oh, you've made some good friends at school. You're starting to fit in. You're not the, the weird geeky kid who like, should be two should be two grades ahead and nailing through all those classes and wearing secondhand clothes and shit like the weird like secondhand clothes not the good secondhand clothes, like weird secondhand clothes um at a new school and then you gotta move again and start the process all over again um so i think i think it's a little bit of column like there's days when i wake up i'm just like gung-ho like freaking loving life the patio to be honest like last week the big big win for me was putting the patio out the front at, at clive's like that had been a, a one month stress stress ball in my head as soon as that happened it like took a a weight off my shoulder yeah who came up with that idea then was it you yeah (laughs) okay i think with clive's like there's always gonna be that hook you know like when you come to clive's like without bar seats as well which really is a killer um you'd come to clive's back in the day and you go oh i might be able to get sit at the bar but if i sit at the floor that'll be okay but without bar seats what's what's the what's the hook you know sitting on the floor you can still get a great experience from the staff a great here me and Dave get out from behind the bar and touch tables, kiss babies and stuff. But now with the patio, it's like, okay, well, let's go down to Clive's. We may get onto the patio. If we don't get on the patio, I'll be okay with inside. So that's now the hook. So mm. now like last week was like twice as busy as we've had since we reopened. I love it. Which was huge. And it's I'm it leans back into the sort of European aperitivo style that I want Clive to sort of go back into that direction. Aperol spritzes, Negronis, Americanos. Um, this week on the Happy Hour menu, I'm putting um, Averna uh, lemonade on back on the menu, which is um, Averna and lemon tonic, which is money. Mm. Um, so it's sort of gearing back to where I want Clive's to be in the next six months. And do you, those Happy Hour menus, do you change those every week? Um, happy menus stay, they're, they're evolving. Because I'm trying to wind down my beer program to be a bit smaller, wind down my wine program to be a bit smaller, um, and we're putting more spirit, like more cocktails on tap. Mm-hmm. So probably Friday this week, I think Quinn messaged me. So Quinn and Michaela have got their uh, the Squawite Wine Company, their dry vermouth and tonic. Um, they're exclusively kegging that for us, and so they're going to carbonate it, keg it, and carbonate it, pre-mixed and everything on site there, and just deliver us kegs. And then we just tap it and we'll have vermouth and tonic on tap. So that's kind of cool. That's amazing. <laughs> so in the next in the next three to four weeks, we'll probably see we've already got Negronis on tap, vermouth and tonic on tap, Aperol spritzes on tap, and a Prosecco on tap. And so we'll just kind down our beer program just because we don't sell enough beer and cocktails sell. So and, and so how did this come to be with you coming back to Clive's? <sighs> that's a good story. Um so Jason and Alicia have been here pretty much since I left. So Jace took over from me when I left in 2013 to open Jumbo. Um, and just during COVID, he took the chance to sort of take a take a look inward of what I shouldn't really talk for Jace, but like take a look at what he wanted to do in the industry. And working late nights, it, it's a drag. It it does take a toll on your body. Um so working late nights and and working a beast that is Clive's, like Clive's is a, a huge responsibility as a brand to continue constantly it's, it's a it's a little bit of a hamster in the wheel and the hamster doesn't stop um and so he took the opportunity to step away and sort of reevaluate and he, he's now a manager over vessel liquor which i think is awesome 
I love that. So I was just in there a couple of days ago. Yeah. And my just, girlfriend found something. She's like, oh my God, I had this in Edmonton. I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And here we go. Some of the weirdest stuff in there, which yeah. is great. Um, but so yeah, he's he's over there, which is he's got a work life balance, which I, I actually did a podcast day about work life balance because it is very, like you said, self aware. Like my work life balance is not like someone else's work life balance. And I shouldn't aspire to your work life balance or so on and so forth. Um, and so I reached out to the hotel and I was like, Hey, so heard you're looking for someone. Would you be up for listening? Like sitting down and having a chat. So we had a chat and I think a few things that are happening in the city with like Veneto no longer being Veneto and, mm-hmm. and sort of losing that sort of foundation of cocktail culture, which Veneto is like literally the, it's Clive's and Veneto, then Jumbo on top and Cenote and, and Sherwood and Wind Cries Mary and Nubo now and stuff like that. So it's losing like a big foundational chunk out of our industry, out of our culture, I think was a big blow to me personally. Not because I had anything like invested in in, in Veneto apart from the kids that work there and, and mentoring them. But it was just like one of those things is like – did you work with all of them there? Most of them, yeah. Okay. Like Brant was that with me at Little Jumbo. Mikey was with me at FTW. Yeah. Um, so most of them had been with me in one shape, one way, shape, or form. But it was a fact. It, it sort of with with that sort of happening, it took me way back to 2009 when I first took over Clive's, and we literally had Clive's and Solomon's, and then Veneto came on the scene, and Solomon's left the scene, and so it took me back to like. <laughs> like one of those like flashback Walt Disney style, like when what's his name? He's taste Ratatouille for the first time. And he goes back to his childhood. It was literally like a flashback back to 2009 when I was like remembering Clive's, like when I tell stories about Clive's back in the day when I first took over and Saturday nights would be me and chef. So no support, no, no floor stuff, just me on the floor, chef in the back. And I'd ring out $120, hmm. not in tips, like $120 in sales on a Saturday night. And that sort of slow, progressive build and sacrifice and work and like texting all your friends to come down and have cocktails because cocktails just weren't a thing at all in 2009. And so it took me back to this t- this time where like cocktail culture was just a slow burn. And that didn't, that wasn't quick. Like people think that Clive's happened really quickly. Like I took over in May 2009. I would say that Clive's became Clive's in October 2010. So like 18 months of this excruciating slow burn. Was it acknowledgeable for you when that happened? Like looking back, you can sort of see the shift, I guess, or the change. Yeah. But at the time, could you acknowledge that like did it ever hit? Not not on a level that I was aware of. Hmm. Not on a level that I was like, I'm making a difference. Um, and then – 2010 sort of happened. I got a new bartender on. 2011 and 2012, we got the back-to-back world's best bar and the like top four world's best hotel bar at Tales of the Cocktail, which still no other bar in all of Canada has even got to the top four ever. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and this is 2011 and 2012. So the amount of work it took to that. So like when Veneto sort of disappeared and sort of dissolved, it sort of pushed me to go, okay, well, I made a joke to the kids. And I was like, "Oh, dad's gonna come out of retirement and freaking like pick up the pick up the bootstraps." Yeah. But like, it it really came back. Coming back to Clive's was really a legacy thing. It go it go it goes back to legacy. Is like, I would really horribly regret coming in here six months if I said no to the opportunity. Coming back in six months and it all going to 
worse, like crap. And me walking in going, man, I could have saved this place. I could have, not that it was in a bad spot, but like I, if I could really have made a difference here. And that that's why I sort of I talk, sat down and talked to the wife really hard. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't know. Do I have time for this? Like, you know, I can probably do 35 hours a week here. It's mainly night sides. So it's just extending out some of the work that I do. And she's like, oh, I think it'd be really good for you to go back and just have have that sort of that place. And so I, I bit the bullet and coming back has been the hardest and the most rewarding thing I've done in a, in a well, I shouldn't say in a while, but like you know, on a different level, like on a, that, that sort of very bartending pillar sort of level. It's been one of the most rewarding things on that. And so for you coming back and sort of, having that type of feeling what's been the coolest thing you think so far since you've come back here the customers having the guests back having some people who i know supported clive's back before it was cool you know chef Corey from um whole beast yeah he, Corey's awesome yeah Corey's fantastic he used to come here in 2009 2010 and be one of those people on a saturday night sitting at the bar for three four hours having pisco sours and fernand and cokes he'd bring sean down and Sean and Michelle, who were starting dating when they, in 2009, when they used to come in here, are now married with a kid, you know. So I think it's that response of, while on on a physical level, it's diff, it's hard to work behind the bar again, going on 40, that response of people going, I'm so happy that you're back. Like that, that's, it goes back to that people please thing. Like it's, it's that, like people coming back here for some, some of the people have come back for the first time in like five years, six years. They haven't, they haven't come back since I left, which is, it is a bit of massive ego stroke, but like, it's, it's also one of those things is like to have that sort of brand confidence from the consumers is a huge thing. Like having that confidence where you can, where someone's willing to just like have that sort of symbiotic relationship and just go, what are you working on? Just give it to me. Um, I was going to ask how many people just come in and, and like get you to make something on the spot. Lots. <laughs> what, what percentage do you think? Lots. Lots. <laughs> Cause one thing we, we, uh, Anton and I found when we were in Japan mm-hmm. and we went to Lampar. I don't know if you're familiar with Machido. No, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, I think he was named the, the best bartender in the world in 2015 mm. or it was some, it was some very prestigious, uh, award. And when we went in there, it was a little speakeasy bar, and they had actually two hidden bars on either side of the, the the main room. Wow! So like it was like a hidden door. One of them was some luggage that you would push the door back and go through into a whole bar. So a speakeasy within a speakeasy within a speakeasy. Yes, and then and then when you first walked in, there was a mirror right here on the right, and that mirror would slide back, and there'd be a whole another bar there, but there was no menu at that that bar. Mm-hmm. You just you went in. He would ask you what what you liked, and then he would just sort of stand there and think about it for a second, and he had his little notepad. And he, again, they were, they were dressed all, yeah. there was a reason why they were wearing what they were wearing. Every bottle was there for a reason. And it was just a very different experience to experience something like that. But when you walked in, didn't you feel that like that center? Like I, I felt like the place knew what it was yeah. and it was just, everything was exactly how it should be. There was no, yeah, there was no, um, it was very calm. No fuss and no muss. There wasn't. Yeah. No, it was just, it, it knew what it, it knew what it wanted to be. That's what it was. And everything was in the place where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. It was very, very relaxing. And then just to have him come and the confidence of him, like he was very sort of more, um, 
very quiet, mm-hmm. but you could tell like he, he knows his stuff. Yeah. And then he brings it out and then he brings you a drink and explains what it is. And like one of them, I think he took um, Crown Royale and redistilled it and made his own stuff with it. And then he had like a, a bitter that he had made with some sake and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And it was just, it was madness. It was crazy. And, and that's just the thing is like, again, it goes back to, I think we were talking about it earlier. It was like um, culture, like culture with a big cocktail, wine, whatever. Cocktail culture isn't built off creativity. It's built off consistency. And that consistency then breeds confidence. And then once you have that confidence in the brand, you know you can go there for absolutely anything. You know that the drinks are always consistently good. Like they're creative, but they're always consistently good. Like you can have a creative drink once and it's great. Next one's not so great. The The second visit is horrible. But it's that, that consistency of awesomeness that you've got to sort of keep because then that breeds – like I can walk up to a table now and go, usually drink X, Y, Z, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I got something new for you. And they'll be like, cool. And they're like – and they'll, you can see them go, well, what is it? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. And I'll go off and make it and bring it out to them, put them down. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like the Averna and Lemon Tonic. Like Corey was in and I'm like, I know you like Fernand and Cokes. I know that you like Pisco Sours. I know you like these drinks. I'm like, you're going to love this Averna and Lemon Tonic because it tastes like a old school sort of Coca-Cola sort of sarsaparilla sort of oh, thing with a lemon this. twist. That yeah. would be amazing. And it's just two ounces of Averna topped with Lemon Tonic like a bit of lemon and it's just money and i'm like that's as simple as drink and people are just gonna eat that up and i guess that that is though that's because of your expertise you know what somebody you know what somebody else doesn't know that they don't know yeah i guess you yeah, can make that connection maybe yeah and i think that i think that's the thing is, is like people do want to let go you just got to build that confidence up in people mm-hmm. so that they feel so comfortable with you that they'll say yes to anything it's the same thing with like sushi, right? Like talking about Japan, like sushi restaurants. You'll go and you'll sit at a sushi bar and you'll talk to the sushi chef and he may give you like three very like rudimentary dishes that are very classic. But then you're sort of like, well, where, where's your weird stuff? And then all of a sudden his eyes will light up and he'll be like, ah, oh, you want weird stuff. Here's some mackerel and here's some sea urchin and here's some like he'll he'll give you the the tuna roll and the and the the prawns and stuff like that to start. Yeah. But then when you start like building that rapport, all of a sudden he's like sliding mackerel to you, sliding some smoked eel, some sea urchin, there you go. And all of a sudden you're sort of building this sort of symbiotic relationship. And it takes a really long time. Like, and that's the thing is like goes back to that, like those years and years of Clive's of even when Clive's in 2010 became super popular and won awards and all this stuff, it's still, it's still work. And I, I sometimes have to remember, remind myself when I do like new places, whether it be Little Jumbo, FTW, Cafe Mexico, that I sort of have to always take it back to a zero to sort of start again. And I think. I think that's always the key is like Cafe Mexico. Great. Yes. I'm, I'm running the bar program. I was the general manager, but I've got great people running the bar program and they're making the cocktails. You've got to still build confidence in the, a whole new myriad of customers because the people who go to Clive's little jumbo Veneto weren't coming to Cafe Mexico in the beginning. The, the first couple of months were all old Cafe Mexico clientele who were used to their Tex-Mex and free free uh, tortillas and dip and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, they're getting like hardcore Durango cuisine. And That place was so different after. High-end cocktails. So different. It was amazing. It's, it's literally one of the things that I regret doing when we rebranded that we didn't change the brand up from Cafe Mexico. Mm. That we didn't change the brand to align more to the direction we're going, especially with uh, Chef Wazay now there. Um, 
he is doing some epic, like classic, like Mexican dishes. I don't think chimichangas are on the menu anymore because the menu had to get truncated for COVID. He took the opportunity to go, okay, no more chimichangas. And so he's geared it much more towards like traditional Mexican food. Like I know that he goes to Mexico well before COVID, obviously he was going to Mexico one or two times a year and eating all the Michelin star restaurants in Mexico city and stuff like that. And really experiencing Mexican cuisine on a whole different level. Um, and he is just a phenomenal chef. He is like one of the most talented Mexican chefs I've ever experienced in my whole entire life. His tacos are on point. Everything that he does is on point. It, it really did stand out though, when we went there, cause I'd been to Cafe Mexico before the fire and I was like, this is not the same restaurant. So it's interesting that you were saying that you wish that like it had been re- rebranded. Yeah, I just think it would have been easier because people weren't getting the like the taco burrito half and half plates and just the Tex-Mex rubbish. And again, that's expectations, right? Because people would come in with that name yep. and they would have an expectation. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Like even when – like so when Clive's rebranded, um, Clive's was Victoria Jane's for like 20 years. So Victoria Jane's was a pub in this space. Hmm. And so when they redid it all, like they gutted the room. Um, can I get a picture for you? Can I jump up and get you a picture? Because I've got a picture. Yeah, yeah, can, I've got, can, a, I've got sure. a picture of the original Victoria yeah, I can, James. I can cut this. Yeah, yeah. Let's see here. Let's get this in the, in the in the. If you're not watching the video, we're back now. I've got it up on the uh, the video right now. The picture he's talking about. So this is Victoria James before okay. renovations. Yeah. So this is all this back section here. Like it kind of, it kind of. I could have probably used that. Like I, it's a very hipster joint. I could have probably worked with that. But they did this big renovation. But then. When they renovated, they wanted to get away from this British pub sort of feel, but invited every, all the old clientele back. And so they all wanted it. So I remember a funny story. When I first took the position here, um, I left Moxie's back on Vancouver and Yates. I was the assistant general manager there. And I came over here and the wife and I were out one night. And I'm like, you know what? Let's go to, let's go to Clive's. Check it out. Brought all my friends down, like six people right here. And let's check out where, where I'm going to take over. And we came down and uh, there was drag racing on the TV with sound. So sound was like right through here with the drag racing going on. And I'm sitting there and I ordered a cocktail and it took about 25 minutes to get to me. And I lent over to my wife and I had a good job at Moxie's. Like it was, it was, it was still Moxie's, but I, took, I had a good job there. And I lent over to my wife. I'm like, I've made a fucking horrible mistake. This is, this is not good. And so for the first six months, we still played hockey on the, on the TVs with sound. And it was just a very – a place where staff would come and hang out and have nachos and watch the, the hockey game or the, the tennis thing. So it was this massive change for Victoria Janes, which was, as you can see the picture, to this swanky sort of room where they spent a whole bunch of money. And so it was a long – a long and hard process to sort of build that. And Cafe Mexico was very similar too. It was like, okay, so every table on a Friday night, I know I'm going to have to go and explain to them what the menu's like, how it sort of rolls. This is what we do now. This is a this is our margaritas. We don't do them in big witches brews where we just dump in a whole bunch of mixed dough and sweet and sour mix and just scoop it out on ice and then serve it. We're doing real cocktails and stuff like that. And so – I always try and it's, – it's a humbling moment when you think that everything you've done in your career would make it easier and it never is. It's always still freaking hard. That's always hard. And as far as Clive's here, 
Do you have anything upcoming that you have planned that are going to be in the works or is this kind of an ever evolving, just sort of uh, natural organic thing? Um, I, my, my sort of hard date is like the first of October through for a big new menu because the hard thing right now is because obviously we've got single use menus which means that I can only have so many cocktails um, and I'm, obviously Clive's is notorious for the, the ooh, for the book for the book menus um, and so I'm trying to eventually get back to that sort of style the menu will definitely probably secret out like more aligned with what we had at FDW, the fold-out paper sort of style, like a newspaper style menu. Um, but it all depends on how these rules post-COVID sort of go. Yeah. Like single-use menus, I'm not going to be spending a bunch of money on single-use menus. We have to throw them away as, as we think. So like right now, it's a gradual burn until October. That that winter that winter autumn menu um, will definitely be bringing. We'll definitely be keeping the cocktails on tap the way they are, but we'll be bringing back like the hot crock pot cocktails, like the punch bowls we used to do with the crock pots, where you'd have a hot punch, like a hot buttered rum or a, mm. a, a spice cider or something like that. That's definitely coming back for for winter, and really just gearing the menu back to being that sort of really classic European style hotel bar. You know, good highballs and classic martinis and stuff like that so how many items would you say are going to be on the menu then lots lots <laughs> this is going to be some page turner um i think it's about like balancing out what is easy to serve and approachable to really geeky and hard um long-term goal to be really honest i'd love to get a martini cut in here be be victoria's first martini cut by the table so cut comes up you order a martini gets stirred at the table poured done you walk away so you pick your gin you pick your vermouth get stirred up served up that'd be incredible i mean just to think of the people that would come in not expecting that didn't know yep and they see someone over there get it yep and what do you done. think they're gonna do order it exactly so I, i'd like to do victoria's first martini cut is a is a is a goal for me for the new year um but again it, i think it is a, a a slew of evolution because i i kind of with everything that i do training wise now it's a little bit of a boiling frog theory like just a slow increase over time and just keep building up. A lot of people think that I'm a, a bull in a china shop, which I can be, but I try, I'm trying to negotiate that bull in a china shop and sort of understand where Clive's has been for the last seven years, but also understanding where we need to go for the next five and sort of building it out from there. And so you have sort of a timeline of where you know where it needs to kind of go or you have like a, a an idea in mind? Yeah, I have a I have a rough idea. Like I, I think leaning into Amaro's and bitters again is a big thing for us. Absinthe, obviously. Gins have always going to be good here. Building out a whiskey program that's much more substantial is a big one for me, but I need more space. So uh, if we can get renovations for next year, I'd like to to see a little a, a little freshen up and some some movements towards a bigger whiskey program, which means more space to sit whiskey. Yeah. So And as far as the food goes, does that is the food gonna change very much? Yes. We're we're I'm working with the chef upstairs um and and sort of leaning into I've actually downloaded something like twenty five like European hotel bar food menus. And I'm going to print them all and we're just going to cherry pick certain things. I'd like to see sardines. I'd like to see Riette 
you're always going to have to have a clubhouse. That's just the way it is. Uh, same with a burger. doesn't matter if you're a five-star hotel. There's always a burger on the, the hot lobby lounge menu. So I'm, I'm going to try and sort of cherry pick off like 25 different menus and sort of see what sort of sits there. I think a really good caprese salad is always good. There's a whole bunch of little stuff. Um, I'd be stoked for the burger because I have a feeling like whatever burger is here, it's going to be, be like, like mind-blowing. It has to be gangster. Yeah. So, yeah, it, we're, we're going to be working towards sort of like – my goal is, is that we've had – we had Clive's my time. We had Clive's Jace's time. What is Clive's for the next five years? You know, to have a hotel lobby bar that is over 10 years old now, still very popular, still very successful. How do we make it more successful and more popular for the next five years so that we don't go into that sort of – massive dump that most hotel lobby bars go into where they're just like it's a hotel lobby bar like how do you pull yourself back out of that oh it's just another hotel lobby bar it's just another hotel lobby bar and a four-star hotel sort of deal so it's, it's sort of re re-engineering about where we want to see ourselves in five years it was funny i saw the when the uh the patio opened and you and you popped the bottle <laughs> Oh man, people love my screw up so bad. And it's that's the first time that's ever happened where it exploded. First time ever. I've done I've done savoring all over the world, hundreds of bottles, and I know where I went wrong with that one. Yeah. Um, I thought it was funny when I saw it pop up. I love and, the fact you put it out there and you're just like, this happened. Well, I think again, it goes back to like I think I posted a blooper the week before, and that really resonated with people. Yeah. Um, I was doing a quick little uh, cocktail video, and. I said hot as balls. Oh yeah, and then you and then you said fuck in there. Well, the thing is, I didn't notice the fuck. Yeah, and my wife told me she's like, "Yeah, you said hot as balls, but you said fuck." And I'm like, what? "I missed it too." Watching it actually, it, it was one o'clock in the morning. And I'm rewatching. I'm like, "Oh, I did. Huh. Okay." Yeah, but that really resonated with people too. Like, people just seem to love when I screw up. And I think I think people like to see that not everything is perfect. Oh, no. like at the start of this podcast, I screwed up in the very very beginning of the intro, but I'm just going to leave it in there. Because it, it's, I, th- I think it's important to actually have that stuff there. I think so. it's it's still a bit authentic and genuine. Like I've done Zoom calls with my dogs blown up upstairs, and you can hit, definitely hear it on the audio. And I'm just like, you know what? That's just the way it is. Like a fire truck's gone past my house. I live on Lampson Street in Squamalt, so it's like the main thoroughfare for like ambulances and fire trucks. It happens all the time. Yeah. Even in my basement, you can still hear it. Um, but yeah, I think. I think it's that authentic, genuine. Like everybody goes, oh, you you create such great cocktails. I'm like, yeah, but it's the result of like 10 complete screw ups. Like I've screwed up 10 times before this one great cocktail came out. Like it, it's little bits here and there that people think that I just go, Oh, I've got a cocktail idea. Sometimes it happens that way, but like done. Oh, there we go. It's on the menu. And I'm like, and it doesn't happen that way. When you, when you get an idea, um, how quickly are you able to arrive at sort of the final destination that you were hoping to achieve? Like once you get an idea, Pretty quick, pretty quick. Like there's, there's all tweaks real quick. Um, I love that, that about the team at FTW back in the day because we had our group chat and I'd come up with an idea like in the shower or something like that and I'd literally message everybody. By the time that we went through all the messages and got to work that day to work, we'd already have already fleshed out everything mm. and everybody would have picked up ingredients and like brought in tools and we just get there and we go done. And so that. like four people just like brainstorm the whole thing, distill it down to one idea and done. One thing I love uh, that Ine was doing before the pandemic was Sunday fun days yeah. where they had like a, a theme on a Sunday. Like the very first one was Godzilla. 
<laughs> and then Mike came up with a bunch of cocktails. Uh, Mike and Rob and Anton, they they had a bunch of cocktails, um, like revolved around Godzilla. Like there was a Mothra, <laughs> and then whatever the other monsters were. And it was just for that one day. One day. And I, I love the uh, the exclusivity of of something like that. Yeah. Are you going to be doing anything here like that? Possibly. Uh, the like hard a, thing with pop-ups right now is obviously you can't bring people in. But I do have a friend who's coming in from Portugal. Uh, he runs a little bar in Portugal called Ulysses Bar in Lisbon. I think it's one of my favorite bars in Portugal, if not in the world. Like I think it's my top five favorite bars. Um, it's 20 square feet. It's an old cobbler shop. Just a skinny little room. Yeah. No tables. People sit across from each other about this this far apart, maybe a little bit closer. So if you sit at the at the doorway... The guests pass the drink down to you. Oh, and then you stand. You can stand in the laneway as a as a seat. He's got four hundred bottles on the back bar, which is a huge selection of alcohol How for does twenty that fit square in that area. It's twenty square feet this way and twenty square feet that way and twenty feet that way. Oh, so it's like to the ceiling. It's in a two hundred seven hundred year old building or some crazy. He owns the whole building. So how does he get to the bottles that are way up? They have ladder? ladder. Okay. So he has like he has four floors above him. That he like has his apartments, and we like I go stay with him when he goes. He's got back the the highest back deck in Lisbon, and this crazy amount of cool stuff. But um, cars still come up the laneway, so you'll be drinking a beer or drinking a cocktail in the laneway, and the laneway is only about my width, like six point, like six foot five wide. And then all of a sudden, a freaking cargo van will come up the thing, and you'll have to like sit up on the ledge and like hold hold tight so yeah. that they can get up and then you sit back down and you like lay down you stand up on the well in the laneway but he's coming he's gonna quarantine for 14 days and he may do a pop-up here back in the day we used to do a lot of that sort of like single menus we used to do homage cocktail friday and uh did bartender saturday so we did over a space of 18 months something like 125 bars from around the world. We'd take four of their drinks off the menu. We'd recreate them just for Friday and that would be it. Then we did best ofs and a few other ones, but we've done bars from everywhere in the world. Um, I think... How many I, different bars do you think you've been to? If you total? To, yeah, just guess. I'd say a thousand. That's so crazy. Maybe more. Maybe more. Because I... Do you have a top three most memorable? Oh, yeah. yeah? For sure. For sure. I think um, Old Man in Singapore uh, is definitely up there. Why? Um, one, it was my local. Okay. I lived upstairs from it. Yeah. Um, but it was just the team, the vibe. I think it's one of the best bars in the world, hands down. The cocktails are fantastic. Uh, very molecular as well. Rotovapped and redistilled stuff and all this sort of stuff. And I just love the people there. The team just made you feel like awesome it was a high-end cocktail bar speakeasy so my first visit to singapore i didn't know about this bar and funnily enough two guys from montreal opened a place like three blocks away in singapore and i was on uh i was on um kiong sack and so i went and saw my mate from montreal and he's like oh you've got you've got an old man yeah and it's been like four weeks since i've been i'm like no what are you talking about it's like oh man you gotta go to old man and so i looked it up and i'm like and i'm walking back to my house and i'm like wait wait a second this is in my this is in my building like this is in my hotel building and it's just a a, a pineapple light hanging above the door and yeah. that's it no signs that's just a pineapple light so i walk in and i'm like okay and i i sit down i sit down and uh start having a drink and 
one of the bots, it was a quiet Tuesday night or something. And one of the bartenders come sat, sat with me, started chatting. And then there was another bartender who I actually eventually hired sitting like right across from me. Like, he knew one of my mates from Vancouver. So it's all serendipitous. Very random. And he's sitting there, he's having his drink. And then he turns around, he's like, you're Sean Sewell, aren't you? I'm like, fuck. I'm like, yeah, that's me. And he's like, oh, hey. And we, we became good friends. And then he eventually came and worked with me at Misfits at Roxy. Is that literally what you said in your head? What he said yes, that? I always do. <laughs> but I think Old Man Singapore is just that – it's my special place. It's just a place that for a high-end speakeasy style bar that plays Guns N' Roses on Friday night, super loud, where you can have a – like you don't drink beer there. You still drink the cocktails. It's packed, usually standing room only, that I can class as my local is like a very special thing. Like that's a, that's a special, that's a special place. How much does it add to it? The fact that they just have a little light outside and, and you could easily walk by and just have, you were living there for a month and didn't know it was <laughs> yeah. there. How much does that add to like the coolness factor or this, the, the experience of it? To be honest, not much. Okay. Not much because I like, I love taking people there, but it's, it's on the top 50 best Asian bars and stuff like that. Like people know where it is. Okay. It's just that it's a special little spot for me. The staff there are awesome. Andrew Yap, who runs the place, is like this old school Singaporean uh, native who who opened it with the guys from Hong Kong, old old man in Hong Kong, um, and he just runs it special. Like his his level of hospitality is just awesome, and so like that's a, just a special spot for me. Same thing with Ulysses Bar in Lisbon. Like the hard thing with Lisbon was I was there for the Lisbon Bar show. And I was the keynote speaker for the the start of the show. And the problem was is that two of the best bars in Lisbon that get tons of awards were shut till 11 o'clock both nights. I was there for pop-ups and, and guest bartenders and stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I just want to come experience your place um, and experience it without all the tomfoolery. Like it's a different sort of space when you do pop-ups and guest bartenders and stuff. Um, and I walked to a lot. And then another two bars in Lisbon were shut due to the Lisbon bar show. So the staff could go in and attend. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm in town for 48 hours. <laughs> You're killing me. Um, so Ulysses in Lisbon is just great. He's got – he. Uh, so Manuel is a um, Portuguese-born Canadian. So he grew up in Edmonton and Calgary, but he's from Portugal. 20 square feet, really gangster uh, Portuguese beers on tap, like craft beers. And these little setups that you like a Yuzu IPA from Portugal. And he's like, uh, where am I right now? Any Yuzu. I love anything with Yuzu. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then 400 bottles, like Pappy Van Winkle, because he brings so much stuff back from Canada because he's an importer here. So he brings stuff from Alberta back to Lisbon, which have no rules like we have. Hmm. And you can go in and get a Pappy Van Winkle 21 year old, old fashioned. It costs you a pretty penny, but you can get it. And so it's just this sort of special spot. And most people will be like, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, but it is a special spot. And so I think those two spots out of everywhere, I'm trying to think of anywhere else that I went to. That it's amazing like, though with those little bars that seem to exist in other parts of the world where like these little random tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny spots you can easily – Live in the. You could be living in the building, not know it's there. Yeah. But like when we were in Japan, the the day when we were leaving, we're going back, sort of going, getting ready to go to the airport, and we're walking down the uh, the sidewalk, and there was this little cube building was all see through, but it was a bar. They did shoe shines, and and it was a bar. <laughs> 
So they had one guy doing shoe shines. The other guy was a bartender. And like Anton went in, he got a match old fashioned. As you do. In the, just on the sidewalk in this little thing. And it was like an awesome experience. And I think, I think cocktails are now starting to progress into the same. So food, I think has had that for a while. Like you go to a subway and you get great sushi or like, I think Japan's a special spot, but like in France or in Europe, you like find this little hole in the wall that does great pizza or Mm -hmm. like great croissants or great, like ramen, you know, like ramen spots, I think in Tokyo are like this sort of uncategorizable sort of subculture in Japanese cuisine where that was the first meal we had when we yeah, got there. It's literally just, just a sliding door and you walk in and it's it's a sort of stylish like it is what it is. It's a little diner style place and then you get a bowl around and you're like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever had in my mouth. In that my was life. our first two hours there. Yeah. <laughs> just That's ramen. exactly what it was. Just ramen. Yeah. So I, th- I think cocktails have started now sort of in certain parts of the world gained that sort of pay- space. I've had great experiences in San Francisco, great spots in Lon- London, um, just memorable spots. I've gone everywhere and and had some great spaces. I think Lisbon and, and Singapore sort of resonate with me right now because it's just it was, it's been the last year hmm. that I've sort of done those sort of locations. Like I had some great bars in Bangkok, although it was a pain in the ass to get around in Bangkok. Um, I had some great bad experiences in Bangkok as well. But I think that I think it's a personal level. Like when we got best bar here, everybody came in and was like, "Well, you're the best bar, so can I have a pint of Canadian?" I'm like, "Well." what your definition of best bar is and what my definition of best bar is, is very, very different. And so I think it has to be a personal thing. And some people aren't going to like what you do. Some people are going to love what you do, but it is a personal thing about how you do it. And, but I think you also have to stick to your guns and stick to your, that mission statement and that mantra. And there's, I always like to try and live, there's always black and white in the industry, but you try and live in the gray and the gray is about this big for this much black and white. So you try and you, you've got to have rules. You're going to have like the way the door works and how to seat people and what drinks you make and so on and so forth. But you, there's always that gray area and you live in that gray area. And with COVID now, has it, has it shrunk the gray area, expanded it or? Oh, I feel like it may have shrunk it, eh? To a degree. I still think, I think the definition of what brands were for restaurants and bars before COVID has definitely changed post COVID. In a in a in a relatively big way, mm-hmm. um, I don't think if you did if you're a restaurant and you didn't do takeout during COVID, I think your brand has been detrimentally affected. Can I can I say one thing about that? Yeah, my my feeling after talking with some people that own restaurants here, the places that were already doing takeout mm-hmm. pre COVID, they've they've crushed during COVID because yes. I think people are already thinking them as takeout restaurants. Mm-hmm. But the places that were not takeout previously and had to adapt to that, uh, they haven't seemed to have done as well. And I think people already were associating these these places like like Wrap and Roll or The Hive, yeah. and they're doing better than they've ever done, pretty much. I think yes and no because you've got to adapt. Because the thing the thing with the restaurants and bars that restaurants mainly, but the the restaurants that try to pivot and do takeout, they did it in this sort of sense that like trying to still hold onto that old brand, mm-hmm. and they didn't fully go into it. Like for me, I kind of look at it and I talk to Anton about it with sushi. Like sushi is a great one. It's like, why not do a quick video using these sort of cameras of the sushi chef making that one dish and then put a QR code that goes straight through to YouTube on the box when it gets delivered. That'd be sick. And someone can go QR code, 
watch the YouTube video, flick it up to AirPlay to your big screen, which pretty much everybody has AirPlay on their big screen these days. And literally while you're eating the sushi, the sushi chef is making the the thing. Same thing with cocktail to go packs. Why not have the bartender make the cocktail? You have a recipe card with a QR code and you can literally watch Mike Norberry make a freaking... Which I think they did that. I... <laughs> I hope they did because I gave them the freaking like yeah, they, gold. That was that was done. So I think that's the thing is like the, the evolution of consumer convenience in the way of online shopping on the way on the way of online ordering has now jumped the shark. And I hate to say jump the shark in a in a in a positive way, but like I I was just talking to my mate about it. It's like in 1980s video dating was gauche, was like socially like cringed upon. Oh, you're video dating, gross. In the 2000s, Tinder is like, everybody's Tindering. Everybody's bumbling. Everybody's doing whatever dating app there is out there now. It jumped a point where people were like, this is acceptable. Like, for you to hook up on Tinder, it's fine. Online ordering is the same thing. This was going to come. Online ordering from all restaurants, all restaurants, and I'm maybe saying 5%, maybe no, but all restaurants was coming in the next two to five years. COVID just like, jack that process back into a point where if you're not doing online ordering and doing a creative way of doing online ordering, like if you're doing family style meals in your restaurant to the customer, but you can't do that to go, you're missing what the consumer is going to be doing in the next two years. Like, and it's, if we have another lockdown, Mm -hmm. you're really screwed. And so you can't hold on to this sort of dream of, this is what my brand is. This is what the industry's like. That industry's gone. That brand is gone. The industry's broken horribly. Like in the the worst possible way, our industry is horribly broken. So the fact that lockdowns closed restaurants and bars down within a month, you know, like you can have a restaurant and bar that has a, a solid brand in any city that has been around for 10 to 15 years and a bad month can cripple you. Well, I saw that about that one place in New York and I forget what it was called. Been open for 20 years, crushing. There's 83 old restaurants going out of business. You know, so you either have to adapt to the new world or you're going to die. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I I talk to a lot of restaurant tours and a lot of restaurant managers. I'm like, well, why didn't you do takeout? They're like, oh, well, our food isn't takeoutable. I'm like, you do pizza and pasta, man. Like, of course you can do pizza and pasta to go. Like, oh, it doesn't fit with our brand. I'm like, your brand doesn't exist the way it does anymore. Yeah. Like, and it's not going to exist in the next 18 months as the world has changed. Like online ordering, the 2Ds, the Uber food, Uber Eats, the DoorDash, that is becoming more and more prevalent because there's still a lot of people out in BC, not talking about the rest of the world, like just BC, who don't want to come inside. I have customers and guests who are so happy with the patio because now they can come because they will not come and drink inside. Yeah, I, I'm I'm one of those people that doesn't really want to be inside. And that's BC. Where we have like minimal cases. We're not talking about New York or San Francisco or Arizona or Florida. Like we're talking about BC. So if you're not adapting to that and figuring out how to do cocktail kits, um, our cocktail kits at Pagliacci's that Solomon sort of brainstormed and me and him sort of put together, killed it during like the takeout sessions. Like we were just doing swag, like tons and tons of swag. Negroni kit, gin, sweet vermouth, Campari, Two Campari glasses, some Negroni glasses, like Negroni sunglasses, so like a freaking Aperol Spritz, uh, Aperol Spritz scarf with the Aperol Spritz kits, everything. So 
if you're not sort of looking at where your consumer's coming from and what they're wanting from your brand, because that's really what I think that what COVID opened us up to is like, what is the consumer asking of your brand? Mm-hmm. Not what are you willing to give to the consumer? Like, what are they asking for you right now? They want to have your food at home. Like, like let's, let's use Olo as an example. Brad out on the farm talking about the greens. And we can do this all like you you do all your videos on these cameras. These cameras are awesome. Like talking about the greens that go into your salad would absolutely blow up. People no, would I want love to talk to Brad. Like, like when, I, when, when they were closed down, I guess, for renovations or something during COVID yeah. and I saw the paper up, I was worried that it was because I knew they, yeah. they, had, they had the farm <laughs> yeah. going and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, but I was so happy when they're reopened. And I do want to talk to Brad. So like I, I think there's – you've just got to start getting creative about how do you put your message across that's mm-hmm. deep down in your soul across the consumer in a completely different playing field. And we're not talking about like a different baseball diamond. We're talking literally a different sport, like online ordering and eating at home and being away and being comfortable being away from COVID and stuff is a different sport than we're used to. And how do you play in that different league of all of itself? And so, like, coming up with creative ways, I think video is underutilized. I think social media is super underutilized. Um, well, again, I, how many people are putting up even just one piece of content a day for their business? Fuck. I wish more. I really – I don't understand people. Like, I've had so many conversations with people who are just like, oh, I was told three pieces a week is good. I'm like, no. Three pieces a week will just get blown into the algorithm somewhere and will just disappear. And I'm talking like when I when I have those sort of conversations, that's with big brands. We're talking about multinational, multi-million dollar companies where they're like, well, the other whiskey brands only post twice a month and we're doing it three times a month. I'm like, um, once a day. And they're like, no, that's too much. I'm like, are you trying to attract the 25 to 34-year-old demographic? They're like, yes. That's why we did a radio ad. I'm like, when? Oh, like 11.30 in the morning. I'm like, okay, so everybody's already gone to work. So no one's listening to radio if people listen to radio at all in the mornings, unless it's a really good like rate, like morning show. Um, and I was like, so you're trying to track the, chase this demo with this sort of menta- this sort of strategy. I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. You want to chase 25 to 34 year old males in professional pieces, but you only want to post three times a month. Yep. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Once a day. Oh, that's too much. I'm like, you can do easily once a day. It's very easy. You have a huge budget, a huge marketing budget. You can do once a day. Well, it's like you were saying when with your stuff, you strip out a bunch of content from each thing and you can have like five pieces of content from one talk or one episode, right? Yeah. And I think that's the thing is it goes back to like how do people absorb your information? Yeah. Like I take screenshots of tweets and put them up on my Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like the content's still there. I write a co- bit of co- piece of copy that I, I was doing um, the last couple of weeks. I've been trying some new sort of stuff on Twitter because they've got the um, uh, quiz, like the 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 picking of uh, multiple choice quiz. So oh, okay. and then it tells you what the ranking is like. So on Clive's, I'm like, okay, so what's your favorite gin based mixed cocktail? And then the quiz will come through and it's 60% aviation, 20% white ladies, so on and so forth. Screenshot that, put through Canva to square it off up on Clive's Facebook page. What's your favorite gin cocktail? Comment below. And then bunch of comments. And so I think people underestimate how people digest information in this day and age. And they don't look at what the consumer is doing instead of they, they look at how they see things. Yeah. And so like the, that quality is subjective sort of mentality – 
people love videos. People like see that screenshot of that tweet. We got a ton of engagement on that video on that on that post, and it's just a it's just a graph of what no things. I'm like, oh, what's your favorite bourbon? Oh, this one, this one, this one, and like it just engages the the consumer on a different platform altogether. After doing that already on Twitter, exactly. And people, just think about you just took a screenshot and put it up, like, and people are happy to give you that information because mm-hmm. they're super passionate about it. But it just takes again something as simple as a screenshot. Just put that up. It's a document over create. So like, I think people get tied up on like creating, 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 and and, and as soon as you start thinking about how do I create content that's going to resonate with people? Mm-hmm. You start losing the fact that you people certain things will resonate with people on a completely different level. There's stuff that I do that I'm like on I post and I'm like, eh, I never really care about likes or stuff like that. That's not really my my gratification matrix. It um, can't be. I don't no. think it can't be at all. No. no, especially nowadays. No, it's useless. Like I I talked about I did an article about influencer marketing the other the other week, which I still think influencer marketing is still a very viable strategy for marketing. Mm-hmm. Um like Mike when he was doing his spirited uh his cocktail a day thing on IGTV. Oh, that was amazing. It I, I hooked him up with a few brands that he did cocktails with and those brands actually got a little bit of a little bit of a kickback on it. Um, I, I think influencer marketing is a very specific marketing thing because people saw it as an easy way to get ROI instead of actually treating it like an actual marketing strategy. Yeah. They were like, oh, you have 10,000 followers. I will let you have dinner at my restaurant. And that just breeds an entitlement mentality and this whole influencer job description, blah, 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 blah. It's almost like entrepreneurship. Like I, I've only in the last like three to four months actually started calling myself an entrepreneur. It was like this dirty word that I was just like, oh, I can't, I'm just a bit, I'm a hospitality business person. Yeah. Um, But I think with social media and stuff people start overthinking it and so i do social media for a few people and i'm just like okay well listen look at every day like a bucket you fill those buckets up with a theme so it'd be cocktail of the day spirit of the day your little advice section your advice sections i've already got 10 videos for of advice that you did two years ago that i'm going to reuse that that's two and a half months worth of content and they're like what do you mean i'm like well we only put that out on monday Every Monday, you have 10 pieces. That's two and a half months. All of a sudden, 10 pieces of content on a certain theme is very, very freaking easy for people. Mm-hmm. You know, like take, oh, we've been talking about Eno, Ine and Nubo a lot. Saki of Saki Sunday. Just do 10 videos talking about Saki. It's two and a half months worth of content. That's really, really easy. So you start documenting and and really just thinking about like, what people want to see, like they want to see you get your brand new vegetable delivery. Oh yeah, from the farm, hundred percent. Like just a nice shot, white Chef White's. Like even if it's got a little smudgy on it, like with a big ass like plate of tomatoes and basil and stuff, people lose their mind on that. You know, so like just document everything. If you're prepping fish, you're pulling down, breaking down a fish, time lapse that sucker, done. People will love that stuff. And so like that that sort of mentality of cr- documenting, like I've done a lot of videos here where it's just me prepping my, my smoked trident or me prepping a cocktail. Super easy. And it resonates. I think it's reframing people's mindset though, especially a lot of people that don't aren't used to doing social media. Like they're just used to like, like again, wrap and roll. Mm-hmm. Like they do everything in-house. Yeah. They soak their chickpeas every single day for 24 oh, wow. hours. 
or overnight, sorry. They, they, they do all like the meat, they process in-house, the chicken, they, they deal with it all in-house. And they're just used to doing that. But I'm like, you need to show people this because mm-hmm. they don't see that. And all this effort. But, but it's just, again, it's something they're used to doing. Well, I think it's the change in what people see, deem social media as. Because the thing is that marketers took social media and started making it super polished and this sort of faux this faux message, this sort of non-authentic copy and this sort of like inspiration for the day and you're miserable. Like I think Black Mirror and there's a whole bunch of like parody videos of people on YouTube now that do like motivation Monday and then just like I'm miserable. Um, but I think that authentic original story and I try and like get people back to that and they're like but why would I post a picture of my distiller like stirring mash I'm like because people freaking love that stuff like that's what people want to yeah, see do a boomerang or something yes <laughs> do a boomerang <laughs> where you smash a bottle and like just put it everywhere 100% I put glass everywhere when I did that but that's the thing is like I was like I want to do a boomerang this day sort of christening the the patio and then that happened and like Alana who took the boomerang, she's like, are you going to use that? I'm like, message it to me. I'll use it. And it became a post. It became a like a post on my personal that Instagram. That was probably better than it going proper, right? A hundred percent. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and then that's just the thing is like, there's going to be some stuff. So I do a lot of gift stuff, like take in like eight to 10 photos of creating a cocktail in 10 photos and then turn it into a, like a, a, a gift video mm-hmm. um, with a bit of music in the background. And so I think people need to, get over this sort of people are done with like seeing this over the top well-lit like food shots on tables yeah because it looks like an ad and people just go flick flick same thing with stories like stories are super underutilized i think in most in most brands and restaurants like and because the thing is some people won't go through your wall i've had people tell me the best one i think i've had people tell me that um they don't want to mess up their wall because their wall looks a certain way. Yeah. I'm like, you understand that no one looks at your wall, right? Like no one. Like people see your photos in the algorithm splitting off like two days ago, maybe 10 minutes ago. Stories are a really big thing. People go through the stories because that's at the top of the page. Boom, 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 boom. You can go through everybody's stories. I'm like you're just overthinking stuff. This is so true, by the way, because on my account, organically with these podcasts, I put up a little preview video yep. and it just happened to be the fact that every third one yeah. was, was the thing. So now it's a whole line in a row of people. <laughs> and it's like, there's a sign kind of this pressure in my head where I want to maintain that. But like you're saying, no one in general or very small minority of people that see your stuff mm-hmm. are going to your actual account mm-hmm. and yep. scrolling down. And that's, that's so important to keep in mind because even what you're saying, it's even playing in my head. And if you want to really see how that works out, just go and do a link tree or a Shorby on your um, URL. I have on to your do bio. one of those. Yeah. yeah. And see how many people click on that actual URL really shows you how many people actually go to your page. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to throw that out, like literally do an edit job tonight and then take a photo of yourself just banged out, exhausted, headphones on saying like just finished editing three episodes or Sean Sewell's episode and he swore a lot. So I had to put a lot of beeps in absolutely exhausted and post that. And people were like, Oh, it's 11 or 30 at night. And Dallas is just finishing up editing Sean's episode. Cause he swore too many times. <laughs> yeah, dude, there, there's, there's such a lot of different mentality. I think that's just broken. And like you've been saying, like people ha- have an idea, I think how they think it is, but they don't actually look at their behavior. And those two things don't correlate. Mm-hmm. 
They're just they're, there's a there's a big difference. Total side tangent. Yeah, of course. You mentioned before about the real magic at some places is talking to the chef and getting like the weird things that they have mm-hmm. or whatever. Is there a cocktail that stands out to you that you've either made or had that's like super weird? Oh yeah. Like the like a pinnacle one. Yep. Uh nutmeg and clove in Singapore again. Uh a mackerel cocktail. Ooh. And I like mackerel a lot. I wouldn't like this cocktail, I don't think. Yeah, I like mackerel a lot, like a lot, a lot. Yeah. But this was just super briny. Um, a really hot room as well, obviously Singapore. Um, not a lot of air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so uh so a, a a small of a sweater sweatier room and the cocktail just didn't chill down enough to take that edge off that that briny salinity yeah you know like if it was super super chilled i'd be like oh okay like if it was nitro like like liquid nitrogen in and chilled or something like that i'd be like oh okay well, i'm good this is nice and chilled it's taking that salty salinity off the edge but um yeah i would have to say that cocktail was just like this is something I probably wouldn't have again. Mm. Like even for a lover of like briny fish, that that was one was that was like just a little too much. So one thing we talked about in the in the one with Anton and Mike is mayonnaise in a cocktail. Have you ever done that? Doable. Doable because it was a joke. Anton got so he got triggered by the fact that I wanted Mike to do. A, a, they called it the tapeworm. Okay, and, and make make a cocktail with mayonnaise, and, and Anton said there's no way to make it taste good. And he oh, got, there's always ways. I would. Well, I, I, I thought it was hilarious. I love triggering Anton, and he went <laughs> off about it, and, and it was funny. But I'm, I'm wondering if if you've ever done that. I haven't done it, but it would be what I would do is I would, um, put it in a food processor, mm. probably gin, blitz it to emulsify the hell out of it, then sous vide it for a couple of hours to really like get some flavor in there mm-hmm. and then freeze it and fat wash it basically. So it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. You, you'd want to take, you'd literally want a clear product at the end. Yeah. Um, but you would take a lot of the fats and a lot of the flavor out of the mayonnaise and put it in the gin. Okay. So I think anything's possible and possible just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, that's what I, how I live my life. So I think blitzing it, emulsifying it, uh, sous vide it for like maybe an hour and a half, two hours at about 75 degrees and letting that just like really – like because the mayonnaise will probably separate with the alcohol breaking down the proteins in the in the mayonnaise, the egg proteins. Um, but really when you think about it, when you break down what mayonnaise is, it's really just olive oil and egg wa- – and like egg yolks. It's really that – and with some seasoning. So oil is dissolvable in alcohol for fat washing. We use egg yolks and flips. I love egg yolks in a in a drink. Yeah. Egg, egg yolks egg whites, and flips. Sorry, egg whites. Egg whites we, we use whole eggs and flips. So um, it's doable. It would be doable. And then you just you would just freeze it, and then the fats in the the mayonnaise would freeze. The alcohol wouldn't. Yeah. And then you'd put it through a coffee filter a couple of times. I'm, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make this for you this weekend. I will make you a mayonnaise infused gin, and I will take it over to Anton, just for you. That would make and, me so and, happy. And I will, I will film it for you and tag you in it uh, when he makes you makes me a mayonnaise gin martini. At, I would love uh, <laughs> it. You would, you would make my week for this. It would be pretty clear. Like I think the mayonnaise would separate really well. And the it's, fact that you just spent like three or four minutes talking about this, you made me so happy. It's doable. <laughs> it's very, very doable. Thank you. <laughs> Dude, so... Anton's screwed now. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, your books. 
Yeah. So you said you've, you've, you, I mean, two are out and you said there's three and four. So 2013, I wrote my first cocktail book called Cocktail Culture with Nate, uh, who is my bartender here. Um, that was all about Victoria's cocktail culture. Yeah. Um, it lo- and, 2018, September 2018, because it was a really quick turnaround. Um, I went to f- 11 different publishers, 12 different publishers, and asked to do a Canadian cocktail book, um, similar to Cocktail Culture, but like a Canada-wide version. Um, 11, 10 said no. Well, 10, 11 said no. They were like, nope, not our cup of tea. Canada's too much of a small market. Can't sell in the US. No. Um, and then I found a publisher friend of mine in the UK, uh, Mixellany, and they've done books with Gary Reagan, Salvatore Calabresi, Dal de Groff, uh, very well-known uh, cocktail historians themselves, uh, Anastasia and Jared. Uh, Jared Miller is actually the head distiller at um, Sipsmith Gin. Mm. So very, very well-known. They have a little – like a little uh, – publishing company on the side called Mixellany and they said yes but I had a deadline and that was from September 2018 I had to have it done by March 2019 obviously I didn't get done by March because I was wrangling 150 something bartenders to get it done and so we we released it in September October I actually released it in Singapore before I came home Mm. um so Great Northern Cocktails came out and so oh the telephone's off who'd be calling right now um and so we published it. It did very, very well. Um, obviously, just before Christmas, it was really good. And then COVID, we were just about to start kicking off like a, a bit of a book tour. And then that sort of killed all that. Um, but obviously, being a book about bartenders and cocktails, it does need to get updated. And so uh, I reached out to them about a month and a half ago. And I was like, okay, so... I really think because it's difficult. You sort of think about it, it's like I only released this book a year ago, and now I want to start doing the second one. And they want it out in May this time, so like that's a much truncated truncated timetable. But I'm like, okay, well, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, well, let's double down and do it. But before that, I started my BC Spirits cocktail book, which was um, a cocktail book with cocktails from the distillery. So I've got 59 distilleries from across the province. Wow. Um, my photographer is um, Nick Hallam, who is Nickasaw on Instagram. Does really epic black background, very brightly colored cocktail pics. And so he's been always been a really big um, advocate for BC Spirits, like in general, not just me. But I was like, okay, well, you do the photos and then I'll self-publish. And then I start. I reached out about Great Northern because I, I started getting close to finishing up BC Spirits. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to start thinking about Great Northern, uh, Great Northern cocktails because we'll be two years apart by this time next year. If we release in September next year, it'll be two years between publications, and that's a good time difference to do the second book. And um, they were like, yeah, we're going to need you to do that by May. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have it into them by March for May. So basically I'm going to have two books coming out in a period of, uh, in a period of about a month and a half, two months. Oh, wow. One's going to be very specific to BC spirits, BC distilleries. It's sort of like a guidebook slash cocktail book. My goal is to, for people to pick up the book of the distillery, pick up the product and then make the cocktail that's in the book. So it's a bit of a guidebook slash cocktail book. And I got about 59 out of 72 distilleries in the book. 
So I'm, I'm pretty happy and I'm self-publishing that so I can do it every year. So as soon as this one comes out, I'll have to start adding for next year and, and cracking on for the next year. So, I, And do you think you would add on more distilleries? Like would it go up from 59? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that as new ones open, the, the hard thing with BC distilleries in general is that they're not necessarily gun shy, but they're always um, wondering what's in it for the other person mm. to a degree. So it's like a couple of distilleries just didn't get back to me. A couple of distilleries were like, oh, well, we don't really understand the process and do we send you products? Do you need product? I'm like, well, no, we're just going to mock up the cocktails. Like we can make cocktails look like cocktails with gin from anybody. I don't need bottle shots. I didn't want to do bottle shots or anything like that. Um, so there's, I would probably say like right now there's about six to seven distilleries that I would have loved to have in this edition. But I feel as soon as I have this edition out, they'll be like, oh, well, we wanted to be in that. I'm like, well, check your emails and your Instagram accounts and your Facebook accounts and everywhere else that I try and chase you down. Um, so I'm hoping every year that it'll it'll keep increasing as the industry increases. Same thing with Great Northern Cocktails. Like that book is my love letter to the Canadian bar industry. So it's always about like I my publisher literally had to pull cocktail recipes out of me because I didn't want any of my personal cocktail recipes in it. There's no like Sean Sewell section or anything like that where it's like a third of the book is me. It was literally three cocktail recipes that were like classics for me that she pulled out of me hmm. to like put in the book. And I was like, well, it's not really about me. It's about the the 135 bartenders, 150 bartenders I have in the book. So I'm hoping that will keep growing as well into a sort of a tome every two years of like brand new bartenders, which is a lot of work because it's not taking the same bios from each bartender that was in it the first time. So it's easy to get new bartenders on board. You should do a group email and you go like make a receipt and bang, 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 away you go. But then I've got to go back to every individual bartender that's already in the book and then send them back their bio and recipe. I'm like, are you still happy with this? Do you want to change it? Have you changed up jobs? Have you changed up like brand ambassadorships? Do you want to change the recipe of the cocktail? And then, of course, that just sets up a whole other set of work on top of the new bartender. So between Victoria, Okanagan, and, and Vancouver, I think I've got something close to another 25 bartenders just for the West Coast. Oh, wow. Before I even go to Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, which I didn't have Ottawa in this in this edition, Ottawa wasn't in this edition because it was it just I didn't have anyone that came and like sparked. Saskatoon is still pretty small, but I've got like ten new bartenders for Saskatoon. I have ten new bartenders for Winnipeg. Ottawa is a whole new beast. Quebec City is a whole new beast. Montreal maybe about ten as well. So I've got like a hundred new bartenders for this copy of the book. That's crazy. So and you've got an indie go go up. Or one of those things for one of the books, right? BC Spirits Cocktail Book, because I'm self-publishing, that's coming out of my own pocket. So um, already I've paid for the photos and the editing myself. Um, and then it's going to go over to Frisian Press and Frisian Press is going to publish it. And so um, they're really excited because the pictures are really, really good. Like the designer, I sent some pictures over the, the designers, like I'm salivating. I just want like to lay this book out like, perfect and so um i have got an indiegogo campaign which i'm hoping will be the only time i have to do it because i'm hoping that i can take the sales from the first edition mm -hmm. pays for the, ooh, pays for the second edition yeah and so on and so forth um 
But yeah, I've got an Indiegogo campaign going for that right now to try and cover some of the publishing costs um, because it is a passion project. It's a massive passion project. And for all the BC Spirit stuff that I've done um, and continue doing, it's put me in the – my wife hates this because it's put me in the hole for about $12,500 because I – if I do big tastings, I rarely have time to reach out to distilleries to get a response, so I just buy stuff. Mm. So, like, I think I laugh. I laugh now because my second episode, I think, was absinthe. You know what you shouldn't do when you do a, a BC Spirits podcast is do absinthe as the second thing because most absinthe is around about fifty to sixty bucks a bottle. Yeah, and then you got to do seven of them. So your second episode should never be absinthe. Yeah, that, that's on the second episode. <laughs> that's not like you're thirty in and we're no. going. This is number two. And number two, we did absinthe. And I did it with Sol. We brought the absinthe fountain from upstairs at Pagliacci's, sat upstairs in the main office and like tasted a whole bunch of absinthe from, from BC. The, the other thing is like I don't really need 15 coffee liqueurs in my house right now. Like while I love a good, uh, a good black Russian at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to drink them on a regular basis. So when I did the coffee liqueur episode, I ended up having like 12 coffee liqueurs. Same thing with limoncello. Like I don't need – Seven bottles of limoncello in my house. But I do now have seven bottles of limoncello in my house. You know, like the highlights of those sort of tastings is the whiskey and the gin. Because I can use that in cocktails and make a gimlet or a, a, just drink whiskey neat. What the hell is a gimlet? Oh, gin and, and lime cordial. Okay. It's legit. It's good? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm a lazy bartender. But you've, so you've just got an insane collection of stuff at your house now. My wife counted it off because I did a big fever tree project at the start of this year, which I did craft distilleries from across Canada and paired them with tonic, ginger beer, ginger ale, and uh, yeah, ginger beer and ginger ale. Um, oh, and they got like orange ginger ale and a smoked ginger ale and a whole bunch of different things. But I had all these rums and whiskeys and gins and everything from across the country. I think in February, March, uh, my lovely wife did a count and I had 380 bottles in the in my collection. <laughs> I think I'm probably kicking well over 400 now. Um, some stuff moves real quick, like gins and, and whiskeys and stuff. Do you have stuff. it like nicely displayed or is it just kind of like shoved wherever there's space? Um, it's getting to the stage where it's shoved everywhere. Um, my kitchen is my kitchen because I have a. I'm very lucky that in my house in Esquimalt, I have a suite downstairs, mm-hmm. and we don't rent it out, so it's my office. Oh, amazing! So I, I have two. I have two rooms that are my offices. Plus, if you look at my videos, I always have a massive bank of bottles behind me and antique shakers and stuff. But my whole kitchen, my whole kitchen is full of spirits from the east coast so rums from nova scotia random gins from quebec like just crazy stuff that i'm just like i'm just never gonna get through all this this is insane and so yeah i'm kicking about over 400 products in my house right now that's hilarious at one stage i had a a fridge full of fever tree tonics and everything but that's slowly been chipped away you should do yourself a gin and tonic at the end of the night and sit up on the on the couch and relax with the girls and you mentioned um, you have vintage shakers. Yeah. How, how have shakers changed over the years? Have they? Um, yeah, to a degree. Like, uh, And the, what do the different shapes do when you're using them? Oh, don't believe in all the hype when it comes to the scientific well, bullshit. I, no, that. no. I'm just, I'm just asking. Like, <laughs> is there, much. Is, it doesn't do much. No, because okay. the thing is that you've got you, your classics are cobbler, your Parisian, and your Boston. Your Boston's what what you see behind us with just the small tin, large tin. Mm-hmm. It's usually small glass, large tin, and you shake it. Um, and with the shaking motion, is it kind of like a signature of the bartender the way they do yes. it? it? That's what it is, right? Yes. 
Because like in Japan, I notice a lot of people are way out in front. Yep. And then here, a lot of people do it to the side. Yeah. So it, it comes down to this, this, the, the sign. Okay. So the science of the, the Japanese shake is hilarious because the, I can't remember the, who developed it, but I remember sitting on a seminar and he's like, <sighs> so I remember sitting in a seminar and now I'm not scientific in any way, shape, form. He's like, now, now imagine when you're, when you're, when you're shaking a cocktail Japanese style that the water molecules are, sco- are cubes. I'm like, okay, I'm no scientist, but water molecules are never cubes. They're always circle. Like, that's what molecules are. They're a sphere. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. But imagine if they're cubes. I'm like, but they're not. So your whole theory of Japanese shaking of the 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 sort of like... Yeah, that's what it was. It doesn't make sense. Your whole Your whole aim, like everybody's got their own shake. Like I do, if it's egg whites, I do the big lumberjack. I got massive long arms. So I do the lumberjack, like chung, 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 to try and get that so emulsification. As far as you can. As far as I can when it's egg whites, just trying to get that foam, get that emulsification, just like, just massive, like lumberjack trying to suck, chaw down a tree. If it's a, a simple, like sidecar or something, sans egg whites, I'll do the little, the up and down, the up and down, the up and down. But the real thing is, is that you should shake it till your arms hurt. You should shake it till your arms hurt, till the the tin is cold. Just to shake it as cold, and as and the the perfect dilution. Like people say, are you listening to the shake? I'm like, no. I just want. I just bang it out, and then I feel like when the ice is starting to break down, it's getting chipped away. The weight in your hand changes, and then you crack it, and away you go. So, but like every bartender's got their shake. Like you got the the. You got the 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 one two three the one two three, but really at the end of the day, it's the end game is like, just make it cold, just make it well diluted, and away you go. <laughs> like there is no real science behind it. If you've got really wet, crappy hotel ice, which we're lucky we don't have here, yeah, don't shake it as hard. Like just go. It's gonna get really cold, really diluted, real quick. If you've got Hoshisaki, like inch by inch ice cubes or cold draft inch by ice, you're going to have to shake that sucker hard and long. Like you're really going at that because that ice just doesn't break down. It doesn't chip away. It stays as cubes. It doesn't dilute because it's it's meant to be a solid inch by inch chunk of ice. Mm-hmm. And so the like as dilution happens, chill happens. So you really need to shake that sucker for a while to get dilution down. Same thing with stirring. Like those inch by inch ice cubes, everybody's like raving about them. But I hear about like carpal tunnel syndrome in the arms and the elbows from shaking these massive weights. Like those cubes aren't light. And you do seven or eight of those in a shaker every night and you do 500 times that, it's a beast. And so same thing with stirring. You got to be very wary of like, your cold draft ice cubes, like how long you have to stir that sucker for? Is there something that comes to mind as far as like a key thing universally that would be good for a cocktail that would go into a good cocktail? In an ingredient wise? Anything. First thing that comes um, to mind. I've been really in love with it, really like dissecting spirits as of late. Um, as cocktail prices go up, we seem to be staying at the same level of spirit quality. Mm-hmm. So, like, culturally, all over the world, like, as a cocktail culture sort of grows up, prices sort of increase, which, as they should. There's a lot of prep, a lot of care, a lot of labor that goes into these things. But I, I kind of feel like if you're going to charge 15 bucks for a Manhattan, that Manhattan better not have an entry-level rye in it or an entry-level Canadian whiskey in it. It better, it better have something that, like, your profit, like, as prices go up, your profit margin can stay 
really, really like go up with it. But you can always like take a niche back and still make a solid like contribution and a solid profit margin yeah. by making a better drink. My argument's always, and I made this argument back in Moxie's back in the day. Do I want someone to have a twelve dollar drink, or do I want? Oh, do I want someone to have a sixteen dollar drink? And this is ten years ago, but do I want someone to have a sixteen dollar drink, or do I want some someone to have two twelve dollar drinks? I'm always going to want someone to have two twelve dollar drinks, and so I did this. I, I moved from polar ice and uh, lambs in the well at Moxie's, and I moved to Stolik Shania and Havana Club, and obviously I picked a classic vodka martini and I picked a classic mojito and I made it with lambs. I made it with Havana club. I made it with Stolly. Same recipes, same stir time. Like everything was the same. Put it in front of the owners, blind tasted them. I was like, which would you have a second one of? And I'm like this one and this one. I'm like, well, that's Stolik Shania and that's Havana club. The difference between price of those two bottles is 50 cents. I'm like, so you've already said to me that you would have a second mojito made with Havana club wouldn't you prefer to have a Vanna Club in the well so you get a second drink instead of having that cheaper lambs that you think you're making money and you might make an extra, let's be really honest, like maybe $50 to $100 in the year out of that having that product on your, on your well? Or do you want that second drink? You want that $25 per head spend instead of the $12 per head spend? And like, okay, move, change it over. And like kickbacks, like company kickbacks, all that stuff doesn't matter anything if you can't get that second and third drink out of a customer. How do you deal with someone if they've never been in for a cocktail and somebody brand new is coming in and they don't really know what they like or anything? How do you, do you have any advice for someone in that situation? <laughs> I was going to say mock them openly. Um, I, the, the funny thing is, is that we've had through here, like I have some great memories in this room because this this room really, for me, changed the the way I saw cocktails. We've had 19-year-old kids come in here for their first legal drink and order a Zazerac. And you're like, well, but you should be at the Strath having like some sort of sugary, sweet, lychee, peachy, crappy thing. Um, I, I think the thing is, is understanding like how people have grown up and where their head's at. It's like, People say, I don't like gin. I'm like, well, you just had a bad experience with gin. Like, you're just having a good gin. Like, gin in a cocktail, especially a shaken, like, served up cocktail, like an aviation white lady and stuff, the gin is a drying element. It's not a, a flavor element per se. Like, you can still taste the gin, but, like, if you made it with vodka, it'd be too sweet. It'd be boring. With gin, it gives you complexity and, and dryness. You don't actually hit this like massive juniper bomb or you just taste tankery. And like you, you don't like gin because you had a bad experience. But same thing with tequila, same thing with whiskey, all these sort of things. So again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like confidence building and building that confidence up in someone and having them trust you that anything you offered them to, offered to them is going to be good. And also as a bartender, you have to have hum- humility in the fact that you – may not make a drink that someone likes and you have to comp it and you're not going to again not going to keep everybody happy so when people say i don't like gin i can i swap out this product with gin i'm like okay cool i can do that for you but how about i just make you a gin version if you don't like it i'll comp it we'll make a vodka cocktail you'll be happy with it but just try it and they're like okay I'm, I'm so against people like subbing out items just because they think they don't like it. Like there's, there's a reason why the the person making the thing put it in there. Yes. And unless there's like a dietary reason that you can't eat something, 
I'm kind of like, cause I used to do this. I used to like, Hey, can you take that out of my dish? Yeah. And I'm like, well, now you're not getting the intended of it's not, it's not what it was intended to be. Yeah. And I think that's the hard thing sometimes like, Oh, I want to modify the dish, but then I don't like the dish when it comes out. Exactly. And then, and then it leads to po- a possible bad review. Yeah. Exactly. And so like for here, we used to do the Clover Club, which was like always the the most popular, like entry level, easy, like two ounces of gin, raspberry syrup, lemon juice, egg whites, shake it. It's fluffy. It's raspberry. It's gin. And people would be like, oh, I want vodka. And I'm like, yeah, but if you have vodka, it's going to be too sweet. The gin dries out the balances out the raspberry. And sometimes I would, I would just keep gin in there. And I would shake it and I'd strain it and I'd send it out. And then a couple of sips in, I'm like, oh, so what do you think? Oh, this is the best drink I've ever had. I was like, just so you know, I made it with gin. And like, oh, I never knew gin could taste like this. And obviously sometimes that backfires and it goes back to that sort of like bullshit bartender ego. But like you sort of sometimes have to push people. It's like a little bird on the ledge. Like it may not want to fly, but then it, like you push it off the ledge and it'll it'll fly. But I think that's the thing is like you you got to put, find this happy medium of like, oh, you don't like gin cocktails. You don't like what we have on the menu. That's great. Like for us here, we have our house vodka cocktail, which is one of George's who was a long time server here, which was just vodka, lychee liqueur, peach, peach liqueur, lemon juice, shake and strained, super simple, flavorful as hell. And for the people you don't want to have a, like a, a fight with or like a, it's a busy night and you're just like, you know what? You like vodka cocktails? I'll make you a great vodka cocktail. So making them something great that they have. But then when it's a quiet night, like you can go, okay, well, let's try this out. And they're like, oh, okay. I, I dig that. I can I can feel you on that one. And then they go to aviations. Well, last words. And then they, they start really exploring where gin can take them. Brambles. We have a great bramble variation on the menu right now. And they're like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Which is, it's actually been a huge sell, which I wasn't expecting. But so... I think it's just it's a cultural societal thing about how taste change as it goes through and you just got to play that edge at all times and sort of like push certain people that are willing to get pushed that way over the edge. Do you have any um, really cool stories about how a drink came to be like a cocktail that you came up with like a pretty wild story that went into that that <laughs> becoming a thing? Um, so the Mayowell Flame. Mayowell Flame is a very a very notoriously well-known cocktail here. I think it was made for something close to five years after I left. So like off menu, never, it wasn't on the menu after I left. It was a cold cocktail, which is a, it's just a, a pleasant surprise. So it's a tequila, a ginger honey shrub, um, a green tea and serrano chili amaro and grapefruit juice. And I, I, it was, I was exploring shrub. It wasn't really known as shrubs before. Mm. Like when I was doing it, it was known as gastriques. So I was, I was exploring gastriques with the chef one night. And it was for a cocktail competition in Vancouver. And um, so I, I was playing with ginger honey. I was like, this is perfect. This is great. Um, and I think that actually came out of – the reason why it's called Mayowell Flame is that we did the Homage Cocktail Friday with Mayowell in New York. It's closed now, but we did a Homage Cocktail Friday. One of their prep ingredients was a ginger honey shrub or ginger honey grass streak. And I was sort of playing around with this ingredient. I'm like, I've still got some of this left, so let's play around with this. And I was like, oh, green tea, serrano chili. This is really good. Obviously, tequila works really well because it's Mayowell, the, the goddess of agave. Let's throw some grapefruit juice in the shake. And I went over to Vancouver for this cocktail competition and it was just a gong show. Like the judges were just jokes. Um, like Solomon came over with me to compete as well. And his cocktail was hot. 
It's a hot cocktail. And the judges wrote down, like, I don't think this cocktail should be hot. It should have used a Reposado instead of Blanco. And so they weren't judging the cocktail on what the cocktail was. They were judging on how they would do it, oh, which is like the- That's problematic. Which is the biggest faux pas of, like, cocktail judging. It happens a lot still. But, like, and mine was- <laughs> I remember mine. I was second last. Solomon was last. I was second last. And they didn't like my garnish. So I, I did a big grapefruit peel over an ice globe. So I transported ice like ice globes from Victoria on the ferry in an ice box for a cocktail competition. And they they judged me down. And I did this grapefruit peel that I would cu- I'd cut into a, a flame. Okay. And sit on the edge. And like, garnish is a joke. Like, these are the sort of comments on the, on the sheet. I'm like... You know, and it was around the time that I was sort of really trying to push this uh, hypothesis that cocktail competition cocktails weren't doable in bars. Like a lot of these guys would go like insane, like uh, Jafard pear, like Paul William has a pear in the bottle. So this guy cracked like five bottles to get the pear out and made a puree out of it. I'm like, well, you can't put that on the menu. How you, You're not going to crack five bottles of... Jafar Pa William every week to make a cocktail. Like, this is ridiculous. This, your cocktail competition cocktail should be able to be put on the menu. And that's just purely from a branding point of view. Like, these brands put up big money for these competitions. They send you to Mexico. They do all this. Stuff. They expect a little bit of ROI post-competition in your bar doing these cocktails. And I, I had this like, sort of hypothesis in my head. And plus, if you win and it's a drink that you actually can do, then you can say this won this. Exactly. And a lot of the times you can't. Yeah. And so I was like, screw it. I came back and I was like, I'm going to put the mayo flame on the menu. And it became like a massive seller at Clive's. Like, like I said, five years after I left to the point that there was still prep for 2019 in the fridge when I came in. Ginger honey shrub. How did that make you feel when you saw that? Oh, I always love it. Like a cocktail is as complex as that. Still being a core cocktail is like a dream come true. And off menu. And off menu. Like a core cocktail off menu, still getting made, mental. And so that sort of proved my hypothesis that just because your cocktail doesn't win a cocktail competition doesn't mean it's not good. And judging is so subjective. The same judges will judge the same cocktail differently the very next day based on the food they ate in the morning, the coffee they had. Did they have a fight with their girlfriend or the boyfriend at the time? Like, what sort of mind state are they in? They hung over and have, like, the the taste of cat's ass in their mouth. Like, all these things. And so, the male flame sort of proved my hypothesis that just because a cocktail doesn't win a competition, actually comes second last out of, like, 14 competitors. Yeah. That it's not successful. And it, it literally made, like, Clive's Drunk Uncle is another one. Drunk Uncle is a very similar cocktail. Like... It's a cocktail I did in 2019. It's a it's a simple Boulevardier Negroni riff, Isla whiskey, um, China Martini Bianco grapefruit twist. And I'm like, sweet, this is great. Uh, I had it on the menu for a long time. It got put into a Gary Reagan book, which I'm always thankful for Gaz for that. But at, when I got hired back here to take over, a kid in Sao Paulo in Brazil posted on his Instagram a picture of his drunk uncle, all in Portuguese except for my tag. <laughs> it said, at Sean Sewell. And I'm like, shit. Okay, well, maybe. The, and, the, and this is a drink that's 10 years old. And I'm like, well, I'm drunk uncle's on the menu now. Like, it's it's come full circle. And like, if the drunk uncle's still getting, like, representation in 
Brazil yeah. and in Europe. I'm like, okay, maybe I can bring it back on the menu. And it still sells like hotcakes here. That's incredible. But nothing like the Mayo Flame. The Mayo Flame is a beast unto itself. To the point that it's like... So basically everyone that comes here should order that. Um, once I get the prep redone, I haven't got the prep done. I, I, t- I took it off. It may come back next oh, summer. Okay. But like they they put two cocktails on the menu. One was called the Mayo Killer, which was... Is that the replacement? Was was supposed to be the replacement and it still didn't cut it. Okay. And so they did the Mayo Killer trying to get rid of this... Like the Mayo flame calls, and and then the Mayo will come back, <laughs> and the Mayo will come back. So it was, it was insane. Do you have a favorite aspect of hospitality? I think it's because every day is different. Like I know that's a really cliche, cheesy, freaking thing to say, but I think the thing is, is that you you wake up every morning and. You, for me, especially, I think you're a little bit the same as like you're a hardcore planner. Like I plan every – like the reason why I can achieve everything is I plan every 15 minutes of every single – like my whole day. Um, I think to to sort of grind – like so when you step back, do you, do you feel like you do a lot of stuff? Or do you feel like you're like – you're not doing enough? Like there should be you, – you should have room for optimization to do more. A bit of both. Okay. So – a bit of a bit of both. So the the reason why I think a bit of both because I I always want to push myself to do more. Always, yeah. it's it's just the nature of my beast, and I don't know. I think it comes from my father, um, my dad. Um, he couldn't read when he was t- like twenty one, so he was in a lot of trouble in high school. He's from London in the UK, so like skinhead, Doc Martens, the whole shebang. Um, when sixteen, he was told he was either going to go to jail or the military. Went to the military, killed, obviously killed, I shouldn't say killed, but as a, as a term, but that's a little bit too much. But, um, but then when he came, he, he has a really high IQ, but he couldn't read and write. He bounced through high school, like left, right, center, juvenile delinquent. My mom taught him how to read and write when he was 21, 22. Um, ridiculously smart man. Like you're talking about math or name the seven C's or do this, like, uh, in, impressive gentleman like he and he was just a truck driver after he got out of the navy he was just a truck driver but he never got a speeding he never got any tickets parking or speeding or nothing um i've seen him spend an hour trying to back up the trailer exactly to the point that he wants it to be um so when he started becoming a, a business person what i started working in when i was in high school it was this constant drive of like i would wake up at five o'clock in the morning I would go load a truck full of sod or turf to be delivered that day. I would wash my arms and legs off in the in the car on like just a bottle of water, get in a school uniform, go to school from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m., hop back in the car, get back into my work clothes, and then go work from 3 to 10. And that was my day, day in, day out, seven days a week. At what age? From 13 to 17. Wow. So – it was this constant drive. To, my dad always said, regardless of what you do, I, he's like, I don't care if you're a ditch digger, a garbage man, whatever, just be the best you possibly be at it. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of drives me. But my mom always used to say, regardless of how good you are, there's always someone out there better than you. And so you- I think ha- those are good. Like <laughs> the fact you got both of those pieces of advice are important, but that's great. It's this sort of polar opposite pulling effect that I, I always want to be the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. And so- I always think that I'm like, oh, I didn't do enough today or I didn't do enough. And then I update my resume for any reason, like whether it be to put on LinkedIn or anything. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, 
It's only been seven years since I left Little Jumbo. Well, actually six years since I left Little Jumbo, literally to almost the month. I'm like, all the stuff that I've done in six years, I'm like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. I've done multiple seminars all over the world. I've spoken at, at big trade shows. I've won cocktail competitions. I've done national finals. I've opened 13 venues. And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I have done enough. But then I still go, okay, well, I haven't really. So I think with hospitality, I think, especially being back here, it's, it's kind of a breath of fresh air for me and it invigorates me that while my whole week is really, really planned, I know that when I step in here at 3 o'clock on a Friday, when I'm about to start my shift or 2.30 on a Friday when I'm about to start my shift, from that point on, nothing is planned. Nothing is – everything is intangible. Everything is pivot and move forward, pivot and move forward. There's a beauty to that. And it is. It's, it's, it's kind of like the – it's kind of like a, a ballet or a, a really good football game. You know, like you, you sit in the locker room and you're like – the X's and the O's and the movements and all that sort of stuff. But then when you get on the field, everything can change. And I think that a little bit has revitalized me over the last couple of weeks is that while it's exhausting and tiring to do 120 hours a week, it's that everything's planned, but then three o'clock on Friday, absolutely everything I can plan is done. And from that point on, I'm at the will of how many people we have come in, Kegs blowing. So is that is that time off in a way, almost on some level? <laughs> I think I think there's always a purity for me for bartending. Yeah, it, it's not robotic in a bad way, but it's so set subconscious now. Like me pouring, me stirring, me shaking and stirring is just a movement that my body just gets into and jigs, and it is like. My brain might be still firing, but my whole body just takes over. Like it's funny because a couple of the guys, I don't really eat on shift, but I never also never like have breaks to go to the washroom or anything on the shift. My body just shuts down to a point there. It's just like, hey, you've got a job to do for the next eight hours. Just get it done. Like there's no, there's no washroom breaks. There's no sitting down. You, you're going to do eight to 10 hours on your feet and you're just going to, it just, it just takes over. Hmm. so it there's i think there's a purity for me in bartending like there's there's always times especially coming back here i was like oh do i really want to go back to bartending like i've been working so hard lately to try and get away from the cocktail guy sort of like you're the cocktail guy sort of mentality i was like do i want to go back but i'm like but there's a really good home base to have i could do a lot of cool stuff there i can become a practitioner and show people what i do for social media marketing and stuff like that i was like but bartending which which long term it's not going to happen. Like long term, I'm going to have a team here once we go seven days, and I won't work the bar very often. Maybe one shift a week, two shifts every two weeks, sort of thing. Um, and how often are you here right now? I'm definitely here Friday, Saturdays every week. Okay. So, but then I come in and do menus for the guys, and tomorrow night I'm supporting the guys because I'm short staff, so I'll, I'll work support for the guys tomorrow night. But there's there's a certain level of just purity and doing what you like doing. You know, it's like a, I think it is like an athlete becoming like a, a GM of the sports team or something. Mm-hmm. There's just something about getting down on the on the on the field and throwing the ball, or like taking a tackle, or just playing around like that. I think th- there's a certain level of just om. It's like meditation. Like there's no there's no worrying about clients. There's no worrying about partners. There's no worrying about projects. It's just cocktails and 
there's a little bit of labor and doing the financial side of things, but it's just cocktails and making great cocktails, making sure that garnish is on point, doing it as quickly and cleanly as possible, supporting your team, like building your team up and getting them excited and enthusiastic about it. So yeah, I think I think bartending as a whole, but I can I do I feel the same way when I serve. Like when I was general manager and I served, I it's just something I love going in the dish pit too. Like I love doing dishes. People think I'm mental, but like there's Again, nothing, you love the process straight there's, up. There's nothing better than like just stepping off the floor, taking your tie off and doing dishes for an hour, hour and a half. And it's just this this beautiful place where you just do it like you're you have a goal, you have a a, a job, you do it, you put in the dishwasher, you pull it out, the goal is there. It's quick gratification. It's just mm-hmm. it is like a drug. <laughs> and what are you thinking about when you're doing dishes? Nothing. Okay. Like nothing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like planning something else or anything like that. I'm, I'm not thinking about anything. So is it almost like a meditation on some level? Yeah. Hmm. I started off in the dish pit when I was a kid. So I started off in the dish. I never, I wasn't a bartender for about 12 to 18 months when I got in the industry. I started off doing dishes 6am on a, on a Saturday morning in a, in a restaurant, a buffet restaurant of all that. So there's just tons of dishes and there's just some gratification about cleaning that dish pit out getting all those dishes done, more dishes come in. So it's another tackle job. So I think it's just it's just a short-term gratification on applying that to long-term gratification that I get now. Like patio took a month. There's a lot of steps to get to that patio. The patio was up. I came in early. I set it up, got the guys ready to go, and the gratification is there. I know. I love the fact you did that time-lapse video. <laughs> that day of setting up the whole, the whole thing being done. Yeah. I thought that was great. So so you started off as a dishwasher. How did, how did you did – you, just take it because it was a, a job you were young or how did that all work that you getting into the industry so i think it was on my 17th or 18th birthday on christmas day um my father and i had a massive falling out and i punched him oh that's not good and so he kicked me out of home so i got kicked out of the home like 500 bucks in my pocket packed up all my stuff and drove me about an hour and a half into the into the city because I, I grew up in the country and uh dropped me off at a friend, friend's house and uh Basically, let me fend, my, fend for myself. Lucky enough, I had good, good friends. I slept on the couch for a couple of weeks, started looking for jobs. Um, and with my landscaping background, I got a job as a handyman, junior handyman at a, a little small little three-star hotel off off a big park in, in uh, Brisbane. Hmm. And so, I started being the junior handyman. So, hmm. the, the main handyman would come in about 9 o'clock. I was supposed to be there at 7. I'd be like changing light bulbs and cleaning windows and helping the housekeeping staff take out linens and stuff like that. Never been in hospitality. My mother was a horrible cook. Like just the – it's a typical horrible like cook. Like family of six, all 18 months apart. So, Five boys, one girl. There was like always three of us going through puberty. One was ending, one was starting, one was in the middle. And so the amount of food that my house would go through was just ridiculous. So mum would literally cook two, two or three kilos of potatoes and just mash them up in the pot, little uh, smidge of butter, no salt. We didn't have salt and pepper in the house. And literally just mash them up and on the on the table. And so you scoop out like prison rules, elbows on the table. Um so I'd never been exposed to restaurants being in a small town. My graduating high school class was like 62 people. Oh, wow. So small town, no restaurants anywhere for like 10, 15 kilometers. And so started working in this hotel and um, 
maintenance and housekeeping and all that sort of stuff as like a 17, 18 year old kid. And one night, one of the guys was like, Hey, do you have black and whites? We're short staffed. I'm like, yeah, I have my black and whites, but I wear to interviews the stuff. And they're like, cool, go home, get them, come back for seven o'clock. So I came back and, um, uh, bartended and served a wedding. And then that was pretty much it. That was the, that was the bug. Like I started bartending upstairs in the bar in the restaurant and doing breakfast service outside the kitchen and, and helping with that and really sort of delved in. I was, yeah, I was super young then. I remember the first time someone asked me for a martini and it was like, yeah, I'm out and literally walked out the bar with my hands up and let the other bartender make the martini because really? I was just like, I don't even want to tackle this sucker. I don't know what a martini is. I have no idea. Then I started like really delving in. And so over but a space- you knew at that point that it was something that you were you were pretty passionate about? I think it was something that was outside the norm, like working in landscaping for two years, like you're eating McDonald's and drinking like two liter Cokes and 42 degree heat and grinding out like yard after yard after yard. And and me and my brothers became very well known in the, in the suburbs of being super fast, sod, like sod layers. Like most teams could do like 50 square meters an hour and we would get up to 75 to a hundred square meters an hour. So we were like, we could do a a full size like suburban yard in a space before lunch basically. And so um, it was that hard grind. And then, I sort of saw hospitality as a sort of glamorous, like life change, and so I, I started delving into it. And back then, like we're talking nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight, there was no internet, like there was no smartphones. Like if you wanted to learn about cocktails, there wasn't even bar courses. Like you would have to go and like go to bookstores and buy books and take them home and and read them and write them. And so by by the time I was twenty twenty one. I I went for my first state title at a cocktail competition and won. And so I, I won a state title for a cocktail competition. And I'll, I'll have to send some photos through because there are photos floating around of that that photo shoot after I won that. And I was like 150 pounds and six foot two. Um, it was I was very skinny. But um, and then that sort of just fed it. And and back in the day, I used to be really upset that I jump around from job to job. Um, but now looking back, like I literally would get a job as a bartender or a, a supervisor or a server or whatever. I would literally just suck that job dry of everything I could learn. And they'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to move on. And from 21 to 25, I, I worked number of places from nightclubs to silver service, serving like the premier of Queensland and all this sort of crazy stuff. And I would, I'd go from, silver service lunch service in a in a dining hall to a nightclub to finish up at the nightclub and going upstairs to the the cocktail bar and finish the cocktail bar off till four o'clock in the morning five o'clock in the morning um and then i got a job at a really good high-end cocktail bar and that's when it really started like ticking with me um but i with everything that's gone on i think i grew up here in canada more so when I came here when I was 26. And so that that was the big transformation. I don't think I'd be where I am in my career without coming to Canada, if that makes sense. And where sense. did you come to in Canada? Victoria. Oh, you did? Never lived anywhere else. And so why did you come to Victoria? A girl. Okay. Not my wife. <laughs> Babe, well, it's, it's, uh, you're lucky, I guess, that you got led to Victoria because I think Victoria is amazing. I, it was. And that's the thing is like I fell in love with Victoria really hard. Like it, it reminded me a lot of Brisbane, but 
I came and I started exploring myself a lot uh, on a personal level and I was 25, 26 when I came, like 26 when I came. Um, so I, f I fell in love with Victoria. I broke up with the girl very quickly afterwards, but I was like, oh, this has got something special about Victoria. And again, there was no cocktail scene. Like I came from being named one of the best bartenders in Australia before I left to being a nobody, a nothing. And so I got into my wine. I worked at Moxie's not knowing what a franchise was um, at all. I didn't, we don't have franchises like Moxie's in Australia. We don't have cactus clubs or anything like that. Um, and then I started getting back in my cocktails when Solomon's open. And that's what sort of sparked it all back up. I was doing, I did a cocktail competition in New York. I had a magazine in New York for a little while there in the, in the, 29s 2010s as well so i had a magazine that i was writing for in new york at that time too which is all cocktail related so it was like i was living outside the culture here in victoria mm -hmm. and then solomon's open and i'm like oh i've got a brethren like i got someone who i can actually like talk to this is awesome we can actually chat about cocktails and <laughs> i remember solomon always loved this story too but um i remember the first night solomon's opened me and the, me and jill went down um, people always find it weird that I call her my wife or the wife, but it's a capital T and a capital W is for the, the, the wife. She's like, it's capitalized. Um, so me and Jill went down, we weren't married at the time and I ordered a gimlet and me and Solomon got into a Barney, like a Barney. What's a, what's a Barney? A fight, like a, a verbal, like not like a big fight, but like a verbal altercation okay. on how to make a gimlet. I see. Because he was super old school. Like he, he was trying to do a certain style of cocktail and i like my gimlets with roses lime cordial i'm ghetto when i'm like i'm super ghetto with my gimlets um and traditionally it would have been made with lime cordial the lime cordials changed over the years so roses was created to fight scurvy on british ships it would have had a higher level of sulfuric acid or sulfur in it so it would have been a bit punchier um but you would be two ounces of gin I think a lot of the times right then and there, everybody was going like sugar syrup and fresh lime juice. I'm like, I don't want that. I want my ghetto gimlet. And we had a big, like a big verbal, which me and Sol have had multiple verbal altercations over the years. Never that we like don't talk to each other afterwards, but we always have these fights that people walk away from, whether it be ice dilution and size or how to make a simple syrup, all these things. We have these massive disagreements because we're both very passionate. So I ordered a gimlet and that was the, the time that I was like, huh, Victoria is ready for this. You know, like I looked around, I saw people out of the cocktail started that year. Um, out of the cocktail started that year for the very first time. And I was like, huh, maybe this, maybe the, the last three years of me being in Victoria have sort of, Victoria's caught up. Vancouver was pretty behind as well, but caught up to where we were in, in Australia. And so that's when I started really getting back into like, okay, well, cocktails are going to be big in Victoria. It's coming. Well, it's like speaking about Brad at Olo when he had mm -hmm. Ula. Yep. And he had to re redo it because they just Victoria wasn't ready for that. And I, I think Victoria's always one of those cities that I, I love when people always post like, oh, there's nowhere to have good lunch in Victoria. I'm like, okay, you're open for lunch and then no one comes. Yeah. Like everybody always complains about lunch until they, you actually open for lunch. And then it's like, oh, there's no good place to have brunch. Okay, I'll open for brunch. No one comes. So I think you've you, – everybody – like Brad at Ulo for sure. Like Ulo was always way ahead of its time. And but it – 
catered to a very specific style of clientele that had traveled the world and seen places in New York, seen places in, in San Francisco and gone, oh, this is what dining is really about. It was getting a promotion or it was getting like recognized in like New York and yeah. San Francisco and in Victoria, like it was like, didn't work. Exactly. You know, it's the same thing with Clive's back in 2011, 2012, like people like New York knew about us, San Francisco knew about us, London knew about us, but in Victoria, people were like, why, why do you do cocktails like this? Why is it in a tiny glass? Why can't I get a cosmopolitan? And so I think when you're trying to push being ahead of the curve, it's always one of those things. You just got to grit your teeth sometimes and go, you know what? I, I believe in my vision. I believe in what I'm going to do and I'm going to believe that I'm going to follow through with it. Where would you say the state of cocktails are now in Victoria and where are they going? I think, I think I'm happy with the direction of where cocktails are going. We've talked about Veneto and Ven- the loss of Veneto. I think is a huge, is a huge thing for Victoria. I think people don't underestimate. I think people underestimate just the impact of what Veneto as a venue has done. But on the flip side, what Mikey and Anton have done over at Nubo really shows that it's about the people that can make a venue, like make or break a venue, really. Um, so I think I think we're in a good direction. I think there's still certain things that I look at and I'm like, okay, well, we've plateaued to a degree, but I'm hoping that some of the youngsters giving gain some rope. Like I looked at the new cocktail menu at Nubo, really fantastic menu, like really good menu is coming out very shortly. I'm really hopeful for that. Yeah, I was um, sitting with them. I, I stopped by randomly and they're sitting outside on the patio. Yeah. And they were going back and forth about it because they both have strong opinions. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I love just sitting there and hear them just go over everything. I think for cocktail culture in Victoria, I want to see more venues and more operators and owners give some of these kids some more leeway. Like it is scary as an operator and owner. I get it. Like doing weird cocktails and doing like infusions and stuff like this. It is, it is precarious, but at the end of the day, a lot of these kids are very talented and they either know already, or they reach out to their mentors to teach them new things like costings and seeing how things are going to flow and stuff like that. Um, But I think a lot of it is a lot of kids. There's a big gap. There's me and Solomon at the very, like the older guys, Nate and Kyle from Nibble Bar Company, they sort of sit in the middle. They're, they're not young, they're not old, but there's a smaller portion of that. And then you've got this massive swath and this big age gap between Solomon and I to these youngsters, like 25, 26 years old, me and Solomon going on 40. So this is a big gap. And so a lot of these kids don't have the, the capital or budget to open up their own place and express themselves. So it really comes down to these operators putting faith in them and giving them some patience and some time to really evolve. Um, And I think Ine and Nubo have done that absolutely fantastically because it is scary as hell as a, as a new operator going, here you go. Here's, we need all these. I mean, he's doing a lot because he's got four places now. Exactly. So, so, like, it's a big move to, like, put your faith in a 26-year-old kid to bring out a great cocktail menu and then hire all his buddies, basically, even though they're super talented, but, like, really hiring a great team. So, they've done a really great job on that. So, you just need that, like, that little bit of leeway and that little bit of rope and all of a sudden you really can win um, in it. But it does take a lot. Like, I again, I, I remind the kids that I had to do it here. Like there was a petition out when I first took over this place for me to get fired because I stopped playing sports. Oh, really? Yes, from guests and staff. 
So, like, that was a really awkward conversation to have with the old food and beverage director that I had calls made for my expulsion from Clive's because I wanted to change things too much. But then bit by bit, we started making more money and we started getting busier. We started getting recognition. We started getting press. And all of a sudden, the snowball starts having. They're like, oh, you're not as eccentric and crazy as we thought you were. I guess you just can't push it too hard at the start. It goes back to the boiling frog theory. Like if you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog in a, a pot of cold water and put it on heat, mm-hmm. it'll just sit there and let it simmer until it dies. Mm. Which obviously the result is not death, but it's that sort of adaption bit by bit by bit. And there's a lot of conversations you have where you're like, I, I understand that this is really ostentatious and crazy, but trust me, it's going to work. Transparency is great. You have to be transparent. Yeah. You have well, if you to, want people to trust you. Yep. You have to have transparency. You need to be open lines of communication. I don't have a stomach ulcer anymore because I'm transparent as hell. I love it. <laughs> Dude, do you have a, uh, an influence in, in how you operate just in general? From so outside, outside influences? Could be anybody. Well, we've talked about Gary Vee. Like, I, I yeah. discovered Gary Vee a couple of years ago. Like, it pushed me to go back to school. I went back to school uh, a couple of years ago. I haven't finished off my diploma, but my advanced diploma, because of my trip to Singapore last year. But I went back to school. I did my advanced diploma in uh, tourism and hospitality management. A lot of the courses were super easy, and I breezed through them. But then I did HR and strategic financial planning, and which have really added to myself. And I think. I think outside influences are Gary Vee. I, I haven't had a lot of other outside influences. Like I'm not a big podcast listener outside of Gary Vee. Yeah, Gary Vee is incredible, by the way. If yeah. no one's seen him, Gary Vaynerchuk, you need to go check him out. And I've had a lot of people like do the usual like, oh, well, he got given money by his dad and all this stuff. I'm like, I, I align myself pretty hard with him being an entrepreneur and doing things like taking this place from zero to Clive's. Um and helping my family's business and all these sort of things. So um, it's always been difficult, I think, for me a little bit to a degree is that I've never really had a mentor per se mm-hmm. because like when I was in the industry in, in Australia, there wasn't a lot of older mentors. Like we were all sort of just scrambling to try and figure this out ourselves. Um, I would say that someone like Gary Reg and Philip Duff have been big influences on my career. Um, Solomon at Pagliacci's has always been a massive influence for me. Like we, we had a good relationship, but then when everything happened at little jumbo, he stepped up in a, in a way a friend probably went above and beyond. And so me and Sol are always going to be probably really close. And we have, we've done seminars all over the world. We've had great trips and we've had great stories and fun and stuff like that. Um, but for me, it's always about waking up the, the the next morning and hoping to be better than I was the day before. So, and it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. But that's that's how I operate. I, I honestly think the fact, like right now, I'm perfect for who I need to be right now, mm-hmm. like today. But if I was the exact same person a year from now, then I wouldn't be adequate for a year from now. Yeah, exactly. But, but I'm perfect for today. Yeah. Like I keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. But I I, I guess for me, I don't feel it as pressure. I get excited by it and I enjoy the change and, and being able to reflect back on the way of like, maybe I'll do something mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll click in my head that I would have not have done that thing that way previously. hundred percent. And that's, that's like uh, this, this dopamine hit mm-hmm. when I, when I realized that, <laughs> that I just like leveled just, up. Just gain that. Just give it to me. Just give it to me. Oh, I love it. But no, I, I agree with you. It's, it's one of those things is like, you can, I think that I look back and I, I even look back at the, the breakup at little jumbo and I'm like, I could have dealt with that way better. Like I could have seen that happening and, and could have been a 
better person for that. But on the flip side, like it's taken me a long time and apart from my, my wife would love me to go to therapy, but I don't do therapy. But, um, it's, it's been one of those things that I, if you don't learn from the mistakes you've made, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes. 100%. And it's a ton of pressure to put on yourself to be better than the day before. But on the flip side, why would you not want to be better than the day before? You could die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you want to keep just along? Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, being better. And it's not about money. It's never been about money for me. It's always been chasing that happiness. Like, I'm I'm happy most days of the week when I have stressful, but like that happiness that, that I try to shoot for like 80, 20. That, or, or that's, a, that's, that's a good shot. That's yeah, a good like, shoot. Like, I like that. Make it, make it like 80%. Like I'm, I'm great. Yep. 20% life's not perfect. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's going to happen. But I think, I think waking up, I think everybody needs that a little bit more in their life. Like you could literally die tomorrow, mm-hmm. like literally die. And I'm like, well, what would you want to achieve in your life? Like, Waiting for it to happen to you is not going to happen. Like, again, it goes back to me moving 14 schools or my fallout with Little Jumbo or anything like that. It, you're going to have to bounce back. And I think that's why I take, I don't take more uncalculated risks. I take more calculated risks now mm-hmm. because I know personally I can bounce back from more than I used to be able to. You know, like the, the loss of Little Jumbo almost like ended me. And that was a really tough like year period. And it's still, there's still a little like niggling in the back of my head just that I could have done better, but you could be done tomorrow. There's no second round. That's it. Like, so wake up and just go, you know what? I fucking shat the bed last night, uh, yesterday. I'm not going to do that today. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just think like for me personally, I'm so busy that if I do mess something up or whatever, I, I, I absolutely try to learn from it, but mm-hmm. I can't dwell on it because I don't have time. Exactly. I, I, you just have to plow ahead and, and acknowledge the fact that that happened, but now you're better for it. Mm-hmm. And you've now, it's been, it's a gift in a way, an opportunity to learn. I 100% learn. agree. Yeah. 100% agree. Like I, I look back at all the mistakes and, and mistakes or screw ups or whatever. Um, and I look back and I'm like, you know, I'm lucky that I've got, my my wife, who is just again the most supporting woman in the world, but uh, to to keep moving forward, you just you just got to have to like because people's opinions of you is are gonna, I can't change what you do, nothing like that. It has to just keep going forward. Like you have to have a high enough opinion of yourself to keep pushing through it because people are gonna say shit. People oh, yeah. are gonna talk to you, talk behind your back. People are gonna have opinions of you, but everybody that you meet, everybody you meet in the street has a different opinion of you. They have a different perception of you and their perception doesn't define who you are. No. And I mean, Gary B talks a lot about that yeah. where you can't, you just, I don't know, you can't take that on at all because it makes no logical sense really. Not at all. Where is Sean Sue in five to 10 years, do you think? Or where do you hope to be? Where, what does the future look like for you? I, I think I plan little things in, in the future, but I don't, like, I don't think I have an end game. To I think honest, that's that's kind of healthy. I think to be honest, I don't like. I have little goals that I'd like to get um, on a personal and a business level. Like, I'd love to see because all my companies are very hospitality centric. I'd love to really see my media company really make a difference in the in the way that distilleries in BC and wineries in the in the province make changes to their online like platforms and and presentations and stuff. Um, my branding guy is a super talented guy. I'd love to see at least one. I'd like to, I think in the next couple of years, I, I probably will try and 
take all the things that I'm working on right now and invest in a brand, like a, a distillery or a small BC distillery, mm-hmm. and apply all the things that I'm working on, branding, design, logo work, um, social media marketing, online So, you're building presence. the machine that you'll be able to apply to something. Yeah. It's, I know it's very Gary Vee, but I know it's very Gary Vee, but, but it's, I, it, 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 it's a great methodology. I, I want to apply all the things that I'm working on to a brand so that I can be a practitioner of it and sort of show people like, listen, like you guys said, no, you called me the cocktail guy. You said I couldn't do this. Here's the brand that I helped build and just sold for X amount of dollars. Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to spend a bit more time with my family than I do now. Which I think is people wonder. I, sometimes I think people don't believe my family exists because of what I do. I think I, it was only a couple of years ago that people were like, "Oh, you have a kid?" I'm like, yes. You're actually married still? I'm like, yes. Um, I think there's a couple of personal things I like to go on a vacation once a year. Is one for to keep my wife happy. Um, for a spot you'd want to go to. Um, I'd like to take it to Europe. I'd like to take it to France. I'd like to go to Italy. I'd like to experience food and stuff the way that I do. Because mm-hmm. um, I have certain rules when I go on bar crawls in cities that it's one drink, one bite to eat at each bar. And so she sees all my credit card pop-ups on her phone alerts. And she's like, dude, you fit eight bars in five hours. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And but I sometimes I'm only in town for like 24 hours, 48 hours. So I got to try and maximize my time. So if the bar, the next bar I'm going to is less than 20 minute walk, I'll walk it. Yeah. Like half an hour is a little bit too long, but anything like 20, like 20 minutes and under, I will walk to the next bar, do the same thing. So I've hit like 10 to 12 places in it in a night from three o'clock till midnight in some cities. Um, I'd like to do that for them because I'm getting I'm getting older. Like I'm turning 40 this year. And my daughter's turned 10. And so I'd like to to let get her to experience some of the things that I never got to experience as a kid, but now I have the luxury to do so. Um and I'd like I have a fetish for um cars. So I have I have a bit of a, a thing for cars. So if I ever do make a couple of million dollars, my wife is in so much trouble when it comes to my my garage sort of situation. How much uh, space do you have right now? Not enough for what I want. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'd like to get a, a car that's sort of I, – I, that's one of those things. It's like the cigar and the whiskey on the back porch, like that drive, that Sunday drive by mm-hmm. yourself, listening to music, top down, burling down Dallas Road when the road works aren't horrible and bang up my suspension. But like bang down hot thing is just a personal – thing because i do a lot of stuff for the whether it be the industry or the family or or my my partners so i like those little things but i think i don't think i have an end game because I, I thought about it. i was listening to a podcast from gary the other day and it, like he obviously talks about the jets oh yeah 100 percent. that's his big thing like, i just don't think i have a big thing like i'd like to keep working for a long time like i'd love to my legacy to be 85 percent of the bartenders in victoria to be trained by me in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. You know, multiple distilleries and multiple distilleries and wineries and breweries and stuff have branding packages from my team or uh, media done by my guys. So, like, I think it is very cliche and very, I know Gary Vee, because we're both big listeners, like, it's all about that process and not necessarily the result. Um, I think that's just it. It's like, I, I think legacy is my my thing right now, the next 20 years, like I've got, I've still got at least 20 to 30 years in me, uh, whether it be working behind the bar or otherwise to build, um, 
build something that when people when I pass away in forty years, that people go, you know what, we wouldn't have cocktail culture in Victoria if it wasn't for him. You know, we wouldn't have cocktail culture in on in the Pacific Northwest because of what Sean pulled off. So I think I think legacy is my end game. That's like, kind of like for me too. I've been thinking a lot and and just role playing the fact that like we we're not around forever. No. So and and a lot of people unfortunately get forgotten in, in time. And yeah, that's something like that's why that's probably one of the reasons why I'm doing these podcasts a little bit is to try and do as big of an impact as I can locally and help as many people as I can. Well, because it's not like notebooks anymore. Like back in the day, you would write down notes and you would take notes about who you met and that sort of thing. Yeah. And those notebooks would just disappear over time. You know, this is on the internet forever. Exactly. Like, this is and not I, going anywhere. And I've thought about that too, that these will live forever. Yeah. And these people that everyone that I'm talking to and all these personalities, these unique personalities will be um, documented. And just all the amazing people in the city and yep. just what everyone's doing. It's its incredible. You know, like my, my daughter's starting to wrap her head around it now because she likes to make fun of me because it's a couple, a couple of times she's put up, she sent me a little thing. But uh, the other day we're walking down to have breakfast and a car drive past. is like, hey, Sean Sewell. She's like, who is that, daddy? I'm like, oh, it's just a button. He's like, but why is, she, why is he saying hello to you? Like in the street like that. And I'm like, because um, that's what how daddy is and then the other night there was weird um someone paid ten dollars for my signature here really yes <laughs> which i found very very odd did they did they want to give you ten dollars yeah they're like you I... well because the servers did it all and they thought it was hilarious and the the girl that was with him was just like we'll pay you ten dollars to get a signature and they're like okay. Oh, okay and so they came i'm like i and I found out about it after he left. I'm like, I wouldn't have fucking charged him, guys. Like, I was just giving him my freaking signature. All the staff were just like, why does he want your signature? And um, my daughter's like, what? I'm like, you, you've never listened to – like, you're on YouTube all the time. You've never listened – like, watched one of daddy's videos? She's like, no. They're boring. And I'm like, okay, cool. But it's like, cocktails, people, bartenders, me, my shoes. Like, that's what your Instagram's about. She's got a little Instagram account. And so, she's trying to wrap her head around the fact that she's like – why do people want your signature? I'm like, well, because I wrote some books. She's like, ooh, you wrote two books. Ooh, look <laughs> at me. I'm Sean Sewell. <laughs> That's hilarious, dude. And would you would you say there's a there's a number one lesson you've learned through being in the industry over all the years? This one's going to be hard for people to swallow because I don't think they believe I have it, but humility. Hmm. I think really truly understanding that you you fucked up. Or like you you made a mistake, and it goes back to little micro things like that bad Yelp review, like that that sort of thing just got you. And like you might have had a busy night, been like jammed, packed full of things, and someone came up to the bar and asked for a certain cocktail, and you like snapped them or something like that. Um, but again, it, it comes back to like I'm extremely humble and grateful for everything that's been given to me over the last like the last decade. You know, like I've been, I've been lucky and fortunate and luck has a lot to do with it, but it is also a ton of work and sacrifice. So I think you got to, you got to have that humility. And I think people don't think I have it per se because of my persona, my, my Hulk persona. Like they're like, oh, you're just an eager to, it's called arrogant Australian. I'm like, well, there's been a lot of sacrifice and work behind that bravado that comes with understand that you've got to also be humble you know like leaving here which was to a lot of people a very sweet gig to open up little jumbo was a huge risk and i know a lot of people when i left like unceremoniously left little jumbo that that was like a huge like 
win for most people because they were like, oh, well, he tried his hardest and completely balls it up. So I think humility and gratitude is always something because like, yeah, like you said, doing a podcast, that's awesome. Is anyone listening? So you got to be humble. Like you got to be grateful and humble for absolutely every single listen of every single oh, episode. You have no idea. <laughs> I literally was like, I was going to be stoked if like 20 people listened yep. to, to the episodes and, and, and it's been way more than that. And I just, I, it, it's giving me chills right now. Yep. Like I've just, I, I just, I, I want to thank everyone that's listening, like from the bottom of my heart, yeah. like it means more than I can ever express yeah. in and, words. And you have people go, oh, you're doing it for ego or like who's listening? Like there's always someone out there. Like I'll put in an episode, like I put it the work life balance episode today. Someone on LinkedIn was like, thank you so much for this. This really meant a lot to me. Like we can't keep putting pressure on our staff to work like we do, like everybody's different. Um and it's always those one those weird little messages, like that random kid in Australia that was like, I just listened to this episode, been going through a really rough patch. Like, it's really nice to hear that you have the same problems that I have, even in the position that you're in when it comes to mental health and stuff. Um, so, I think that those little, like, those little grateful moments and those little humble moments that like you can do all this and it could mean diddly squat, but nine times out of 10, it's going to mean something to someone. So I think humility in all of it, like I know that some of my cocktails are ostentatious. So I've become more consumer-centric over the last couple of years. So humility is the one thing. Dude, I love it. This is almost, <laughs> we're almost at three hours. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This has been the longest one by far. It's been amazing. <laughs> it feels like it's gone forever. Dude, um, so if people want to find out more, you're probably going to have the best, like, this you just go. It's like you just go. <laughs> Tell people where they need to go. Um, so Instagram, you can follow me on uh, at Sean Sewell on Instagram or at Sewell Hospitality, Sewell Hospitality Concepts. I think it's the whole word, Sewell Hospitality Concepts. Um, it's funny that I'm the only – if you Google Sean Sewell, my spelling, there's only me. Oh, it makes it easy. There is no other Sean Sewell with my spelling in the world, which is really, really weird. Amazing. It's creepy as hell. Um Although there's a, there is a Sean Sewell spelled S-E-A-N in Australia, and he's a hospitality consultant. Oh. I should you not. Creepy as hell. Really? Yeah. And we're not so related. If you spell it your way, though, you could put the Sean Sewell, literally. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> on You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, Twitter, I'm Sean Sewell. Um, you can go to sewellhospitality.com and uh, find my podcast, Post Shift Podcast, or just look up on your local little podcasting apple and stitcher and spotify and whatnot um bc spirits is my passion project you can look find bc spirits at bc spirits on instagram and bcspirits.com um all my companies i'm not going to bother mentioning all those that's just that'll be overkill so because i've got the human construct branding and design exemplar lm canadian bar store bc spirit swag store I'm missing one. Sewell. SHC. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and if anyone's looking for what I'm doing, you can go to www.vicfoodguys.ca and uh, you'll find these podcasts or look up Vic Food Guys on Instagram. That's Dude, it. this has been epic. This has been great. This has been... I, like coming into this, I knew that that like you do a lot and I was saying that. I'm like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to try and get around all of this. I feel like this was like just an absolutely awesome... This has been of- the best epi- interview I've ever been given ever in my life really i shit you not 
Like oh, we covered so much stuff. It's the best interview I've ever like anyone's ever given me in my life. Oh, no, like thank you, you for that you feedback. You went like this instead of people going like again, cocktail guy. Let's talk about your cocktail book. No, like, no, we, want we more went. We went so broad, and it is by far the best. Like I've been waiting for someone. It sounds really egotistical, but I've been waiting for someone to interview me like what we just did. I love it. It's been epic. Thank I'm you very so much, happy. Sean. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Okay.